You're listening to Once, episode 202, season 4 DVD Blu-ray review. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Jeremy Laughlin. I'm Aaron. I'm Hunter Hathaway. And I'm Jacqueline. We have everyone here as we have watched all of the extras on the Once Upon a Time complete fourth season Blu-rays. And we want to share with you our review of all of the cool stuff that's on this. If you're interested to see with your eyes what (laughs) this looks like. Then watch our unboxing video. We have it on the website at oncepodcast.com as well as on our YouTube channel. You can get all of that stuff as well as subscribe to the podcast and much more at oncepodcast.com. And I'll be referring you to that website more in the future. But now that we've dug through the extras on the disc, in general, what are some of your thoughts overall as we'll get into the specifics but what are your overall thoughts about what kind of extras were included with this jeremy what do you think having seen all of the extras and her having heard one of the commentaries i feel like i know too much (laughs) a couple of beautiful beautiful illusions were shattered for me today and i i don't know (laughs) how to recover Wow, that's deep. That's, that <laughs> that's, is pretty that's traumatic, deep. man. <laughs> is it because they fell through the yellow brick road? Is that why? <laughs> you, you found no, out it was fake? <laughs> no, I, as much as I would like to say otherwise, I did not actually believe that they had constructed an entire yellow brick road and the city of Oz. <laughs> was it the scene with Rumpel and the wind blowing when he's laying on the ground? <laughs> no, because you can so see the wires too. in that one. <laughs> yeah, and there are a lot of great deleted scenes on this. I I think that this had. I feel like the deleted scenes in this season were better deleted scenes than previous seasons, and that's almost a bad thing. There were a lot of them. Yeah, I, like yeah. I felt there were like way more than in previous seasons. Yeah, and we'll talk more about them in a moment, but. It, it felt like some of them were just much longer than we've seen before and a lot more depth and, and really unfortunate that some of them had to be cut. Mm-hmm. What I noticed is uh, all total on this, this isn't the most content we've received extra on the discs. It's also not the least amount of content. There were about 55 minutes of extras, and this isn't counting the commentaries. On the Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray does have some exclusive extras that the DVDs don't have, but on the Blu-ray, it's about 55 minutes of these extras. For season three, it was 40 minutes. For season two, it was about an hour and two minutes. And for season one, it was about an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. Season one had all those Easter eggs, which was awesome. No Easter eggs whatsoever on these discs. I've, I've gone through all of them. I've used special magic to try to find easter eggs a special potion i have none are you using the black fairy's wand let's not talk about that (laughs) okay i promised i wouldn't talk about that (laughs) i was as always a little disappointed with the bloopers i love bloopers from tv shows and 
season one had amazing bloopers and there just haven't been an amazing blooper since then. They're funny. They're enjoyable to watch. I feel like they should be a little longer. And uh, like, I love the bloopers where they're doing the same scene over and over again. And the actor keeps getting it wrong. Those are hysterical. And they had that a lot in season one. The one that comes to mind is uh, uh, Emma Stone. He kept saying Emma Stone instead of Emma Swan over and over and over again. But uh, (laughs) The like Archie I at was, the town forum. Yeah. Archie did, yeah. I was um I I'm kind of excited for the commentaries, just who who did what episodes and stuff. So I'm excited to watch the rest of them. And uh that's another thing. Like since season one I haven't been overly enthralled by the commentary choices. A cup like overall they seem like good choices this year. Hunter, what did you think? Um, I really liked it. I just I love the behind the scenes stuff. We'll talk about it, but like they did a set tour. I love seeing that kind of stuff. I would love to see inside like the editing room. Like I wish there was a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of the neat Easter eggs. I think it was an Easter egg on the season one was you got to see a behind the scenes of that famous fight scene while David is carrying the baby. Yes. And it wasn't that they talked about it. You just got to see it from behind the scenes. From the baby's mm-hmm. perspective. I have a production background, so I always enjoy going on sets and seeing how things are filmed. So that I would just love more of that. Yeah. Jacqueline, what did you think overall? Um, overall I thought it was a much better DVD series than season three. I was I was pretty disappointed with season three. Um I liked most of the deleted scenes. They actually didn't include all of the ones I know are out there because for the first half of the season they kept releasing deleted scenes like every Monday morning. So there are actually a few that didn't make it onto the DVDs, which I thought was a little strange. Um, I actually really like the bloopers this year. I agree with Aaron that season one is still the best, but season four bloopers far and away surpassed season three for me, which was so disappointing. Um, The commentary I listened to I thought was really interesting. I'm glad that the writers, non-Adam and Eddie writers get to talk a little bit more. And in our unboxing video, I mentioned that the season four cover on the Blu-ray does not have that lenticular cover like we've seen in the previous seasons. The lenticular cover is where you turn it one way and you see one image, you turn it another way, you see a different image. Or in the case of season three, you could see three different images depending on how you were turning it. But they didn't do that on the Blu-ray cover. And I thought maybe it was only because... We got our copy directly from ABC. They sent us a review copy. But um, no, everyone that's been buying them has been letting us know that they can't find a lenticular cover, even on the Blu-ray. And that's that's disappointing. Yeah, it could have been the <laughs> hat and its box. Let me tell you something about that. That drives some people crazy. If they are buying a collection of something and they are not all the same, it is so annoying. <laughs> I just bought three memoirs by the same author and one is half an inch shorter than the other two. It drives me nuts. And so that's going to be that's going to drive me up the wall when I buy these Blu-rays. Wait until the show's over and buy the collector's edition, the big, huge one. There you go. Like I bought each season and they changed. They consolidated how they packaged the discs halfway through the show. So the boxes are significantly different sizes. Yeah. I have lost at my house right now, and that is the case. <laughs> and when it comes to the audio commentaries, you've heard us mention a couple here and there where uh, what we've done this year 
to try and give you a more thorough review is each of us watched a certain episode and we were assigned that specific episode. We may have watched some of the others, but this way we can each comment on some of these specific episodes and uh, the ones that have audio commentaries. So I'll give you the list here of the episodes with commentaries. And one of these is the bonus on uh, the Blu-ray that's not on the DVDs. Uh, the first is A Tale of Two Sisters with Jennifer Morrison, Eddie Kitsis, and Adam Horowitz. Hunter will be telling you about that in a moment. Uh, Family Business with Andrew Chambliss and Kalinda Vasquez. These are writers. And uh, Jacqueline will be telling you about them and their commentary in a little bit. And Aaron will be talking about Poor Unfortunate Soul that was uh, with Steve Perlman, uh, the director of that episode, and Colin O'Donohue, everyone's favorite. And Jeremy will be talking about Sympathy for the DeVille. That is with David H. Goodman, an executive producer and writer, and Jerome Schwartz, a co-producer and writer. And then I'll be talking about the episode Mother. That was the one with Cora. If you couldn't tell why I chose that one. <laughs> I'm shocked. And that one had commentary with Jane Espenson, one of the main writers, and Lana Perea. Two more of your favorites. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I actually thought you, I forgot about the core thing. I thought you picked it because Jane Espenson is a genius. And, nope. And you know that. Cora. <laughs> because Cora. I wanted to hear what they'd say about that. But before we get into our commentaries, I want to thank some people who make these episodes of the podcast possible month after month. And we really could not do this without you, especially during these months when we're not producing as many podcasts. We do ha- still have expenses in releasing the podcast, hosting the website, managing the forums, all of that kind of stuff. So for this episode, it's a long list of people. Thank you to David Newland, Steve Johnson, Lisa Slack, Tracy Anderson, Daniel Clark, Swan Got Hooked, Marianne Lavati, Jessica Olson, Amy Cadillier, Tappenbird, DJ Firewolf, Sarah Cochran, one of our new Patreon backers, Laura, another new Patreon backer, and Jennifer A. Treese, another new Patreon backer. And we have 18 total Patreon backers. Thank you very much for your kind support of the podcast. Here's the thing. If you've been supporting the podcast previously through PayPal or through credit card through our website, we'd love it if you would switch over to using Patreon. And I can help you with that. Just email us feedback at oncepodcast.com and I can help you switch that over or cancel the one subscription so you can switch over to the other. But the other thing is we changed how Patreon works. Instead of it being a per episode donation like it was before, it's now a monthly donation. So if, for example, you were donating $1 per month before, but you committed to a maximum of $4 a month, the way Patreon did it when it switched it over is it's now giving us only that $1 a month. Whatever your per episode amount was is what Patreon is now giving us for the entire month. So if you gave us $1, but you intended to give us $4, then please go back to Patreon and just update your pledge over there to whatever amount that uh, works for you. And every little bit counts, whether it's a dollar per month or $10 per month or $50 per month, as some are actually giving. And thank you very much for that. So check out all of those options and understand it more over at oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. So again, thank you, David, Steve, Lisa, Tracy, Daniel, Swan Got Hooked, Marianne, Jessica, Amy, Tappenberg, DJ, Sarah, Laura, Jennifer, and our 18 Patreon backers. Thank you. We could not do this without you. If anyone else, if like you, 
would like to support the podcast, please go to oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. And thank you for being a co-producer with us. Hunter, tell us about your episode that you watched. Okay. Well, I did episode 401, which is A Tale of Two Sisters. And in case you don't remember, that was the first episode of the new season. We had Jennifer Morrison, Eddie Kitsis, and Adam Horowitz doing all the talking. And what was really cute is when they started, they're like, and we're recording live from Arendelle. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm really sorry. This is going to jump all over the place because when you listen to the commentary, they don't go in really any order. They go kind of with what's going on the screen. But then they start talking about things that happened before ha- or soon to come. There's spoilers in this episode, but if you've watched the season, you already know what they are. So it was really kind of interesting because you got the actor's point of view along with the creator. So you got a little bit of both. We learned a lot about why they brought Frozen into the show. They really wanted to get the mythology. So they drew a lot of comparisons between Emma and Elsa and how they have are dealing with a lot of the same issues. It's just Elsa's a little bit further along with her powers and learning how to use them. And Emma really just needed someone there that could help her with hers. And it's Elsa shaped the way Emma does magic. And they really talked about how if you actually watch Emma and how she does magic, she looks just like Elsa. Because she took the way Elsa does it and just did a little bit of her own twist. In the show, they connected a lot of those similarities between the characters and Mm -hmm. their struggles. Yes. So this episode picked up from right where the last season ended. But the whole purpose of this episode was to really start a new arc for both the first half of the season and actually the full season. And when you watch it, you start to see more of like the whole author coming in and how they're trying to find him. They're just trying to extend the whole season out. Emma now feels included because she came back from the past. That's what Jennifer Morrison was talking about and how she feels that Emma's now part of the story that was being written in the book. And the Eddie and Adam actually said that that could have been where the show ended. So if they didn't get another season, I think because when they wrote this episode, they hadn't been picked up yet. So it was like a good ending point from the last season. We learn about the snow around Elsa and how it's a reflection of her emotions. And if you look at the way it swirls around her, you can tell if she's angry or sad. We finally got to mourn Neil. They were talking about how all the fans, including Rumpel, really needed to have that time to grieve. And standing at the grave, Rumpel was able to finally confess what he couldn't confess in real life to him. Jennifer Morrison talked about how every year Emma lets down a new wall. So like sometimes, like first she allows Henry in, and now she's allowing her family in, and then she let down her wall with Regina. So every year we get a new wall dropped. Do you think that's something that they're going to continue into season five now that she's the dark one? Like what wall is there? Unless it's like, the dark one wall. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I don't wall. know. Hmm. Hmm. There was a lot of fun extra things that you learned about the show. Like, we have tank top Emma. Uh-huh. And if you see Emma in her tank top, it really, it means she means business, whether emotionally or physically. She's getting ready to a fight. But if you see her in her tank top, that's what that means. Uh, does the color matter? I mean, I know we've seen relevance to the color of her jacket and some of her other clothing, but is that continuing on their use of the color? 
Did they mention anything about that? Color of the tank top or color of the jacket? Um, any like tank top or just color in general of what the she's tank wearing. top. It was pretty much she always has a tank top on underneath her outfit, and so when she gets really worked up and hot, she has to take off her sweater or her jacket or something, and so that's why you see her in the tank top because she's mm. pumped up and getting ready for some sort of emotional or physical fight. And there was just a lot of other fun little things that they added in, such as Sven. They were talking about the reindeer and how everyone loved him and he showed up, but that wasn't his voice. So anytime he made any noise, that actually wasn't the reindeer. Who was it? I can't remember his name. They said it, (laughs) but it's actually a guy that was on set. Then they're like, oh, well, we like what the noises he made better. So they just (laughs) re-recorded him and (laughs) used his voice instead of the reindeer. (laughs) But that uh, interviewing process was, okay, you do a reindeer sound. Now you do one. Now you do one. We like yours best. Another fun fact was that Adam and Eddie already knew that Zelina was Marion. So they wrote it into the show. They went into the show writing it, knowing that it was going to be Zelina. Nice. Did they reference whether they knew that in the finale of season three? You know, I don't under, I don't know. They just said when, at this point, so when they were writing the episode, that they knew that it was Zelina. Good. That uh, that restores some of my faith <laughs> after <laughs> my commentary that I'll talk about later. <laughs> They've actually answered that um, previously in some like hot seat interviews. Um, back in season four, they said that they they killed her, and then they said something like, "And then two weeks later, we came up with a a better idea." <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so, I see. <laughs> they are not Joss Whedon, I think is the moral of this story. <laughs> very true, very true. And then finally, there was just a little f- couple f- more filming secrets. The farm that they use, the farmhouse where Sven and everyone was, they said it was very far away. It smelled and it was noisy with trains and airplanes, which made for a recording <laughs> nightmare. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then... There's the scene in the beginning with the tower where there's the wedding dress and she's trying it on. That's the same tower that they use as Rumpel's Tower and for Rapunzel. Hmm. So An actual tower? It might be the same CGI. I don't know, but they said in the episode that it was the same tower <laughs> as those two. There was an actual tower for Rapunzel. Hmm. It was It was this, like one like maybe two story turret that they had built and they had the actress standing up in the window and like we have pictures of it from back when they were filming that episode nice and then they ended the whole commentary talking about frozen again and they really wanted to tell the story of the sisters and not anna's wedding and that they really wanted to push what makes you different is what makes you special not weird Mm. so were you fairly satisfied with the commentary For the most part, yes. Sometimes I don't like listening to commentary because they go off on tangents about something that you have no clue what they're talking about. Um, But this one actually kept really close to what they were filming and about the episode and things that you wanted to know about it. That's cool. I like hearing what they said at the end about what makes you... What did you say? What makes you... What makes you different is what makes you special, not Not weird. Not weird. Yeah, that's very like... Jennifer Morrison, Ugly Ducklings, Emma Swan kind of swirled together. I like that. I like that they talked about that. Yeah, and certainly get the DVD yourself or Blu-ray. If you can get the Blu-ray, get it. Get that one because it's got the extra bonus commentary. But uh, that way you can watch all of 
these pieces of commentary and be entertained by things and learn background to some stuff that you would have never known, even just from our recounting and our review of uh, some of what we think of each of these. Jacqueline, you had family business. I did. The episode. (laughs) 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 What did you think of its commentary and what did you notice from it? Yeah, so I did episode 406, Family Business, with Andrew Chambliss and Kalinda Vasquez, who were the writers. They're both longtime writers on Once Upon a Time. This is actually the fourth time that they've collaborated together. One of the things that I really liked about the commentary overall was you really got a look into how the writers work. It wasn't necessarily the actors talking about what it was like shooting, so you got to sort of go to the very, very first stage of the process, and they talked a lot about how they write scenes. For example, for this episode, there was a lot of talk in the writer's room about how they really wanted to bring Belle's mother into the show and go back the farthest we've ever been with Belle's personal timeline. And so that was a big selling point for Adam and Eddie to write this episode. Um, Speaking of the timeline, (laughs) there is a 25-foot-long timeline outside of of the writer's room that they can constantly get up and check. And when they said this, I wrote a little note to myself that said, picks or it doesn't exist, writers, because (laughs) I don't believe you. Yeah. (laughs) Jane Espenson referred to that as well in the commentary on Mother. I kind of think it's a collective fabrication. Yeah, because we had so many issues with the timeline this past season. Really, what they do is they just go to oncepodcast.com slash timeline and they display that on a 25 inch. If they did, we wouldn't have any inconsistencies because Keb is like slightly crazy and tracks every single little detail known to man. Um, I love you, Keb. I do. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I, I want to see a picture of that timeline before I believe that they I really have it. I think it's there, but I think they probably have just pictures of people stuck everywhere and they have lines <laughs> connecting things and question marks and things are crossed out and all the years got crossed out and just replaced with a long time ago. <laughs> yep, that's exactly it. And a very long time ago. A very, a very, very, long, very time ago. long time ago. <laughs> and then on another wall in another room is a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Some other little bits and pieces. They talked about something that is called the group gab, which is where you have a large group of characters standing around talking about the events. And what's really important for the writers is that each character needs a different point of view. Even if they are agreeing with one another, like Snow and David tend to agree with each other a lot, but each of them needs to have a different reason why they believe what they believe. And mm, these... That comprises the entirety of all CBS shows. <laughs> um, they said that these are always really hard to write, and sometimes they refer to the sessions as line rationing. Like, they have to ration why each line is being written into the script. They wanted to keep the mystery of what happened to Anna, but without doing a big blanket memory spell, because they had just done that in season 3B with Zelina and the Oz storyline. But what really intrigued them was the idea of Belle having a secret and actually knowing more than what she was uh, telling about Anna. And they liked this because they thought that it paralleled the fact that Rumpel had a secret that he was keeping from Belle as well. So they both have secrets. Not a good way to have a marriage. Right. 
Or just any kind of a relationship. <laughs> or a life. If your marriage begins with a murder, <laughs> chances are it's not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> this message brought to you by your friends at OnePodcast.com. <laughs> So the episode was actually focused on two people. It was split between Belle and Anna, and those are known as two-handers um, because there are obviously two people in the episode that it's focusing on. Well, that means um, there are four hands. Well, unless one of them's Hook. <laughs> She'll talk about the story books later. <laughs> oh, okay. I like when the writers talk about whether or not they're fond of their own writing. And Kalinda's favorite line from this episode was Regina's, I'm about to storm an evil ice cream truck. Because (laughs) they like that sometimes the characters recognize what they're doing is slightly ridiculous. (laughs) They also really sung the praises of Elizabeth Mitchell, who played Ingrid, the Snow Queen, because they liked that she was so quiet and reserved as opposed to last season having Zelina, who was just so shrill and loud. And so they like that you see a contrast between the villains in each season. What sold Adam and Eddie on doing an entire episode about Belle and Anna was the idea of Belle pulling out the Dark One's dagger and using it on Rumple, because you could never really picture Belle doing that unless she was really, really desperate. And so if she had this secret and she was trying to make amends and make up for what she did in the past and she would be desperate enough to use that dagger against her husband and so that's what really sold adam and eddie on doing this entire episode there was an entire monologue delivered by hook about his childhood and his father abandoning him Um, and actually adam horowitz tweeted the entire scene yesterday though he wants everyone to remember that it's not canon and you can actually go to our forums and read the entire script. He he tweeted that out. But the idea of Hook being abandoned by his father and sort of the, the themes behind it, they kept in what they call a scrap box of ideas in case they ever need to revisit them. And there was a lot of cutting and rewriting for this episode because at the same time, Adam and Eddie were writing episode 407, The Snow Queen. And Adam and Eddie kept filling in plot that then Andrew and Kalinda had to go back in and try and insert or foreshadow into their plot. So there was a lot of rewriting for this episode. Oh, that must have been really hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They also really liked seeing Emily DeRaven play two different versions of Belle because she played the normal Belle and then she played her mirror self. And they thought she did a really great job. They would love to bring back Frances Conroy at some point to play Belle's mom because they thought she really managed to sell the character in just that one scene. And then two final notes. Um, The writers (laughs) said that they often feel like they are banging their heads against a wall, trying to write lines that will stay within the show's mythology. And so they've learned that simpler is always better. (laughs) (laughs) Which is nice. And then the final point was there's that scene at the very end where you learn about the prophecy and you learn about Ingrid and her two sisters. And they're looking at that, Um, family tree and the book and there are three pictures of the sisters and when they acted that scene it was actually just three green circles because they hadn't actually cast the sisters who played helga and gerda yet so that was added later in digital effects oh that's cool (laughs) so it sounds like you get a whole different perspective when you're talking with the the writers than when you're talking with the actor and actress and the creators 
Right. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing about like the acting process or what these characters are really thinking or feeling or how they approach the scene. It's really the writers trying to say, this is why we wrote this particular line or this was the theme behind the episode. They did talk a lot about the idea of secrets being a big theme in this episode because of Rumpel, because of Belle, because of Ingrid and the fact that she's kind of hiding this devious plan. And it's cool that they shared some of that behind the scenes of what it what some of the terminology and some of the tools that writers use, like the group gabs and uh, two-handers and stuff like that, that they shared from a completely different perspective, the writer's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So what do you think overall of the commentary? I liked this one. I liked getting to hear from different people because you know, I've listened to audio commentaries in the past and it's almost always an actor and then the writers, and it always kind of feels like the actors are trying to explain what it is they're doing on screen, and you don't get to really hear a lot about the writing process. And so I'm glad we got to hear that because, you know, hearing that Andrew and Kalinda spent four hours deleting and editing stuff from this script before they actually handed over the final copy to Adam and Eddie was kind of eyebrow-raising because I was like, wow, that is a long time to, to just sit and edit and delete stuff from a script. Aaron, you had... Poor unfortunate soul, which every time I say, I feel like I have to sing it. Sing it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why don't you? I totally think you should. Poor unfortunate soul. Uh, there we so go. Sad. You need to grab the. Um, what have you done? The sound <laughs> clip of Lana Perella singing it. Oh, I thought you were going to say of the actual song because that's one of my ringtones and I can very easily play that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, who's that the ringtone for? <laughs> so that explains why you picked this episode. I didn't pick this episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You were the last um, one to pick. I but, know. I just I had not opened our, our Slack for a while. Yeah, so I did 415, Poor Unfortunate Soul. So it was with uh, Steve Perlman, who it says he's the director. I believe he also introduced himself as one of the producers. So... He's maybe both. And Colin O'Donohue, obviously, who plays Captain Hook. It was an interesting commentary. Colin O'Donohue didn't really necessarily seem to know what to do in the commentary. He (laughs) started out pretty good. And then, like, I think he just was watching the show. And Steve Perlman kind of, like, kept prompting him (laughs) to make comments. So, like, at one point, there was a scene that he was in. And Steve Perlman was like, hey, that's you. (laughs) I wonder if he was just thinking, boy, I'm devilishly handsome. (laughs) Yeah. Probably. probably the first time he'd seen it. They talked about a lot of the production things. Um, so there was like, again, I like what um, Jacqueline mentioned about like writers versus when the actors are in it. So this like this had nothing about the writing and it was all about like directing and acting. So there was like that kind of voice lacked. So Hunter probably got like the most well-rounded commentary just because she had the writers and the an actress. There, it was very funny. They made a lot of very funny comments. Like Colin was upset that he's the only one without magic and everyone else gets to do magic and pulls out hearts and makes things glow, but he doesn't get to. <laughs> they talked about um, how good the guest stars were in this episode. So um, Colin said that he actually did like a proper fangirl moment when uh, Ernie Hudson was on set who played uh, Poseidon. He said Ghostbusters was his favorite movie when he was a kid. And then The Crow when he was a, I think he said like an emo teen or a (laughs) dramatic teen. Um, So that that was awesome that he was on. And one thing that I thought was funny was um, Steve mentions that it's really, he called it a crapshoot when you do episodes that focus on a guest star. 
Like this one focused on young Ursula, who was a guest star. And so he basically said, like, you get this star and you don't know where it's going to go. Like he said, the woman, Tiffany, who played young Ursula, did a really great job in this episode. But just mentioning that, I thought that was funny because that's basically what this TV show is. Especially in season one, every single kind of episode was a different one-time guest star who had to kind of carry the story. So I wonder if they got away from that a little bit kind of as a result of this. Like if you have a guest star that doesn't end up working out, then you kind of get an episode that doesn't end up fitting or then you can't get them back to do future stuff. And they go to a forgotten character island. Is that? (laughs) Or or they get replaced with someone else like Sean McGuire uh, being the new Robin Hood instead of the original guy uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. Tom Ellison. Thank you. (laughs) I forgot all about that. (laughs) So did I. But yeah, it's funny. It was kind of, um, it was interesting because I know when I was in Steveston and then we talked about, you know, like how long it took to film like that one little montage for 30 seconds at the beginning of the episode I saw. This commentary was kind of a lot of that information. So they, the opening scene in the Jolly Roger um, when it was dark and smoky, they said they spent eight hours filming that scene and it was like two minutes long or something. Um, and then they said um, Ian Bailey spent three days with his hands and feet bound when he was shooting in the cabin <laughs> in the present day. And he actually ended up with like rope burns from all that shooting. So there were just a lot of tidbits like that in this commentary. Did you like hearing from these or what did you think of the commentary in general? Uh, it was good. It, uh, I think like once Colin got more comfortable, he, like to, to say more things, it was good. It was very much, I think, how you would, how you would imagine him being in a commentary. And then Steve Perlman kind of was like a pro. So he kept them pretty on track and talking about things that were related to what we were watching on the screen. It seems like the actors are often probably not sure what they can say because they can't necessarily theorize what might be going on, they're given lines and told, this is what you should be saying, this is what you should be feeling. So they can comment on some of that and some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff. But then it's to the crew and directors and writers and such to be able to say some of the thought process that went behind the things, which makes for then a nice pairing that in each of these commentaries, there is someone involved with making decisions about the show and then someone... Well, a couple of them have some of the cast. It's funny because the whenever I've heard interviews and stuff with certain cast members, they seem to know a lot about what went into making their character the way that they are. Hmm. It's almost like like I'm thinking specifically of Jennifer Morrison. She talks all the time about like Emma's childhood before she before we had any context to put that in, and they seem to like have very intense conversations with the writers about, okay, well, why would Emma act like this? And why would she, why would she react to this type of situation like this? So even if it's very general, they still seem to have that knowledge. But yeah, being able to share it in a commentary is probably a no In my commentary, I know Jennifer Morrison made a comment about how everyone takes these roles very seriously and they try and get as much detail about their past and what they're feeling at that point. So that way they can portray it on screen and portray it as, I guess, like real life and in the interviews and mm-hmm. stuff. I know that there's different types of actors, too. So I know that Jennifer Morrison talked about 
or it's been said that when Jennifer Morrison had to use the invisible chalk in season two, she knew where that piece of invisible fake chalk was at all times. She would Mm -hmm. put it in her pocket when they were done the scene to take it out again when they were shooting. So I don't know that every actor would do that. Stuff's expensive. You have to keep track of it. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently the bottle um, that had the ship in it, uh, they broke. So Colin O'Donoghue was supposed to get one for Christmas of the Jolly Roger in the bottle. I guess there were a bunch of different ones and the one that they were going to give to him broke. So he didn't get one. (laughs) (laughs) but they talked about how you make those boats in a bottle and that that was actually a replica of the Jolly Roger that they, they used to film. Nice. Jeremy, you had sympathy for the DeVille. Well, I watched an episode by that name. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I know you might be disagreeing with our episode numbering. Yes. Everybody disagrees with the episode numbering because of that double length episode or is it two episodes that were played back to back we're just going off of the numbering for <laughs> one through 22 that's how we're numbering it instead of putting in 23 episodes so uh this is 418 what'd you notice about it jeremy well now which double episode was that well 408 was the two-hour one in oh, season four A? okay thank yeah. you i forgot about that but they mentioned that in the commentary So this was David H. Goodman and Jerome Schwartz. David's an executive producer and writer, and Jerome's a co-producer and writer. Um, But they actually started out saying this is 418 or 419, depending on how you count that two-hour episode. I'm like, well, okay, if the writers don't even know, I guess, uh, you know, (laughs) happened a long time ago. Well, what Um. I think happened is that the show has their own way of numbering, but then all the fan sites were doing it completely differently. So for the whole second half of the season, for our spoilers and stuff, we were completely confused as to what episode they were talking about. Ah, interesting. Well, uh, Jerome also worked on Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. Now, I could have sworn he said, and I think we actually noted this possibly. I know I thought it. Uh, that opening scene, so this whole episode's about Cruella and her backstory, and there's there's young Cruella running with her blue dress and her blonde hair, and we thought, that looks like Alice. Yeah, I remember talking about that. Well, yeah. Jerome said that the actress that played young Cruella is the same actress who played young Alice. Nice. Funny thing is, trying to look at that and confirm it on IMDb, she definitely played Alice's daughter. Yes, it's but, not young Alice, it's Alice's daughter. But the girls who played young Alice and and Alice's daughter are both named Millie. So I don't know if that's where some confusion comes from, oh. or I don't know. There's so a little confusion you're there. saying like when we see young Alice, creepy young Alice, that's not the same girl. I was thinking, oh, I forgot about creepy because young Alice. Because that, that was what brilliant. I was thinking of when I was thinking young Alice. I forgot that we had seen young Alice in other places. Like at the very beginning of... yeah. But they probably wouldn't change who plays young Alice. Partway through? No, I don't think so. Well, they would have done the pilot, though, a whole season before, right? Yeah, that's true. They did the pilot a lot before they recorded the rest. And they changed a lot of things from the pilot. They actually only shot like 20 minutes of the pilot in order to sell it to ABC. Yeah, on IMDb, there's only one actress credited as young Alice, and that's Millie Bobby Brown. Right. But then a different Millie (laughs) is her daughter, Unless they're the same, but they don't they don't look the same to me. And then, yeah, there's an actress named Kylie Rogers who plays Millie. Yeah, so unless I heard that incorrectly, he also got confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So if it looked like Alice, there there is a family resemblance there. Although she had darker hair in Wonderland than than in this. Uh, I thought it was interesting to hear, like you guys were saying, that you've got the perspective of here, in this case, the writers, and they're also producers. So this commentary has that writer's perspective plus production notes that you might not think of or get mm-hmm. from too many people. They started out talking about how they set this whole thing up to look like the thing they always do, where they show the damage. Like, where did this villain become a villain? But the whole time, you know, having seen the episode, she actually was kind of already damaged or she was already evil and her mother was right to keep her locked up. It was another tower, by the way. (laughs) I don't know if it was the same tower. (laughs) I found it interesting that usually, they said usually when they write things together, one person takes one half of the script and the other takes the other half. And I don't know if that means you follow this story thread and you follow this one, or if they literally are like, okay, you're writing until 8.30 and you're writing until 9. To me, that seems like a little bit of a strange way to write personally, but I'm not a script writer. But I feel like maybe sometimes when there are some disjointed feeling things in the show, maybe that could explain a little of it. Hmm. They don't necessarily like to be too technical, I observed in their mythology. One of them referred to Cruella's magic as crazy green stuff. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Also, I noted that they both say Maleficent as Maleficent. So... If the writers are mispronouncing it, you're not going to have too much hope of the people in the show saying it right. That bugs me. One thing I found particularly interesting in this whole thing was the car specifically. Um, Cruella's car is a Panther DeVille. There were only (laughs) 60 made. And they had um, an interested party who actually heard they were going to be doing this story and wanted, I don't know if he was a collector or what, but he wanted to buy the car and let them use it. So and that's all that's all original like that interior with that crazy feathery red stuff that's all that's how the car was made. Oh wow. <laughs> and it that's is crazy. the same thing that they put into the animated movie. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Uh, they mentioned again going toward especially Jennifer Morrison and how involved she is in her character. She seemed to have a big hand in messing with her makeup design. For several episodes, knowing where her story was headed and playing with how that was affecting. Now, I think in this episode, this is the one when we all kind of thought it got a little weird. The red eyes? Yeah, she... Well, the red eyes, yeah, but halfway through the episode, her face started to look almost bruised. It was like they tried to do some shadowing and maybe did too much or something like that. Uh, I think they were trying to make her face look heavy and worn but it was sort of like you could see the makeup i remember talking about that the eyes really bothered a lot of people she (laughs) like we couldn't decide if it was the makeup or if jennifer morrison really needed a nap (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think uh, as she was starting to have all these different things weighing on her she was trying to even include the makeup in her acting instead of just having people tell her what her makeup was going to look like that day which I like that level of investment from the actors. Yeah. Uh, just showing a little something that stood out to show the mindset of the writers. They were talking about the scene where Regina was controlling Belle with her heart. And 
David was talking about Jerome and he said he made it as cruel and heartbreaking as humanly possible, which is always one of our goals. <laughs> and he and he said it like if I could see him, I assume he had a completely straight face. There wasn't a chuckle or anything in his voice. <laughs> so you can know that about them. It is their goal to make things as cruel and heartbreaking as humanly possible. Jacqueline, <laughs> who was it that killed Neil? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's. Which writer? Yeah, it was Kalinda Vasquez. So when I, when I um when I did her episode, sitting there watching Family Business, all I could think was, "You took away my Neil Fire. I don't like you." <laughs> you took away my happy ending. I will ruin your happiness. <laughs> there were a lot of interesting notes. I definitely recommend watching it. It was it was interesting. They didn't seem awkward in their. Uh, in their commentary, there were very few, there were actually very few moments to actually hear the dialogue from the show, but every once in a while, they did. Uh, when they got to the moment where Isaac was reading The Great Gatsby, one of them actually mentioned, and I quote, that it was a nod to the fictional jazz age <laughs> time period their flashback was taking place in. <laughs> I'm hoping that's um. not canon. <laughs> So there's fictional London. There's also fictional Jazz Age time period. London? No, no, that's that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was um. in the plot synopsis and everything. <laughs> I remember talking about this on the full podcast we did for that episode. Are you for real? It's, it's fictional 1920s London. Oh, my goodness. And yet, this was the episode where they sort of set up and explained the idea of just pocket realms where these stories are happening and people aren't really aware of the passage of time, which is very convenient. Now, the big thing that got me and the reason I'm glad to hear that at least at the beginning of the season, they knew about the whole Marion Selena thing, even though I would prefer that they had known that when they killed her, <laughs> is that they started talking about how they started trying to write Cruella's flashbacks and how they were looking for a character, a main character, to pair her story with. Because they usually do that and they weren't sure that non-main characters could carry the story on their own. Which I would say, have faith in your stories and your actors and your fans. We can watch. This worked very well, this whole episode. But they weren't sure that she could carry it on her, or that the story would sur support itself. But they couldn't find one of our main characters to really attach her story to. And so... They they not only then picked the author, picked Isaac's story to kind of put with it, if I understood all this correctly, they said as they saw his performance, which tells me that even though to me this particular backstory felt like one of the more planned ones, it didn't really even get fully conceptualized until oh. after they'd begun filming the season, which is very strange for me, but explains kind of a lot even the um the detail that cruella had been poisoning her mother's husbands which again why was that plural <laughs> with these uh, trumpet flowers that came up very late in the writing process and so then they tried they, they went back and sort of embedded it in the script earlier hmm. which is one part of me says oh that's cool that's a cool part of the writing process to know and another part of me thinks wouldn't it be even cooler if those details all got fleshed out early enough to start making those flowers a part of Cruella's character early in the season? 
Yeah, and just the, the suggestion. The writing <laughs> process, though, is really hard for TV because mm-hmm. you're making not a movie. You know, a movie gets a writing process that lasts for months and months, maybe even years, and that's for a two-hour-long movie. This is 24 hours of content in this season, mm-hmm. 24-ish, and they're having to pump out episodes. And all of 24 of these episodes, or 22, whatever, in a single year, the popular writing technique is you figure out the end game, the end story, and then you hide clues throughout everything else. Mm-hmm. But the here, they can't have all of those details because they simply don't have the time to write all of those and figure out all of those. So I can I can appreciate that, but at the same time, it'd be great if they could. Yes. Uh, well, yes, I agree. And at the same time, I don't know if they have more writers for this show than some other shows. Or if it just comes off feeling like they have more writers because they don't seem to all talk to each other as much which it sounds like they do so i'm not sure why why that difference is something i perceive it's just i find it very interesting that also that i thought that that element had to have been planned early on so i guess i mean they did it well i liked the way the whole thing came out you know we talked about that a little bit sort of the difference in character especially with corella when we did the full podcast for this episode because someone at the forums had said, you know, if Cruella was really a sociopath and they had had that planned for her since the beginning, then why is it that we see her actually acting with sympathy and empathy earlier in the season? And, you know, the person who said this had mentioned, well, it's like the writers don't talk to each other (laughs) or they come up with a plan after they've written previous episodes, but they don't realize that there's this disconnect between what someone is writing three episodes down the road versus what just aired yeah and yeah and i and it stands out a little bit more i guess because sometimes you watch you know some other shows and it seems like there's a little bit more cohesion even Mm -hmm. through two seasons you know not to harp on it but really the bigger thing even than that story was that whole thing with the ink and we all thought even when he said there's no telling what could happen if that ink were to spill we thought, well, that seems awfully ominous considering what happened later. But they even said in this commentary that, that, that even that line specifically, it was when he spoke the line, he goes, that line was actually kind of a late ad in the writing as we oh. kind of started to decide we wanted to explain Cruella's visual appearance transformation. We threw that in. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, well, that kind of explains it. I think it was a little over dramatic, considering all they wanted to do was change her hair and eyebrows. But yeah. <laughs> And skin, a little bit. And skin. (laughs) See, I could handle a few of the, like, episode-to-episode continuity errors if there was a bigger picture that we knew was going to be continuing. Like, for instance, in Buffy, in season one, (laughs) they foreshadowed the end. Like, the very end. Like, Joss Whedon knew exactly how Buffy was going to end when he started writing it, probably when he wrote the movie way, way back. How I so, Met Your Mother, they knew exactly how the movie or the show was going to end. Okay, don't spoil that one. Time. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, I I get that like actors' availability change and people have babies and you know what I mean. Like, I understand that part, so I can I can understand the like maneuvering within a season or within an episode around to work around like life that just happens. But mm-hmm. it seems like in this show, they they need to work on that. 
a little bit. Now, on the side of props for quality, there was <laughs> there was the plot point where Cruella stole the quill from Isaac. Well, she leaned in and put a napkin in his jacket pocket and gave him a kiss on the cheek. And the box, you could almost think that it was a production error if you saw it the first time. The box with the quill is open on the table. And then when the camera pans down, because he's looking at the napkin, the box is also visible and it's closed. Oh. And that's that was something the director added to kind of carry forward the continuity of the twist of her having stolen the quill, even though the box was open right in front of him. Hmm. So overall, it was a good commentary. Honestly, though, I kind of was hoping as it got toward the end that there'd be some explanation... As to the thought process behind the notion that Emma killing Cruella was an evil act. Even though it was clearly established Emma had no idea that Cruella couldn't really kill anyone. And even though it was done in defense of her son's life. I just wanted them to talk about why those things were connected and they never did. Even though they had just said... Hey, look, Cruella is our one exception to the evil isn't born, it's made rule. She was just born evil. So she's born evil. Emma doesn't know she can't kill her son like she's threatening to. They made a big deal about the bluff that Cruella was making, which was very interesting. (laughs) It was a bluff on a bluff, actually. And uh, it's probably not technically really a bluff, but you know what I mean. But then, (laughs) yeah, but we and we don't need to rehash that whole thing. But I was hoping that they would explain... From their perspective, why that was an act on Emma's part that would help her go dark. But they didn't really... It was the end of the episode and they didn't really touch on it. Well, they did talk about that in my episode about the whole killing. And they're like, you could see the foreshadowing of Emma going dark after you see the look on her face. You can see that, but they... I don't know. It was something for me about how the Charmings were so worried. Oh, Emma's going to kill her and she doesn't know. And well... eh. Yeah, because she doesn't know. Yeah. I don't know. The look on her face said one thing, but the the simple circumstances didn't reflect that she had done something necessarily evil. Right. They had to push the plot because they need Emma to go to this dark place for the next episode, which is Lily. Right. But there's really no explanation, no rational explanation behind her sudden darkness They just kind of want you to go, oh, it's because she killed Cruella. Yeah, but it's not like it was a vindictive homicide. There has never been a literally and figuratively more black and white character on this show (laughs) than (laughs) Cruella (laughs) DeVille. If there was one that probably needed to just be put down, it might have been her. (laughs) And yet that's the one that Emma has now made this morally ambiguous choice over that wasn't really ambiguous at all. It was just funny. Do you I know what's black and white and red all over? <laughs> uh, the view over the cliff? Yep. Mm. Oh, and they also pointed out that Cruella actually got to have her Dalmatian coat in their story. She never did in the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to worry about them anymore. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I know. At first, they said they sounded like they were really pushing it by coming back from commercial. Well, they said they were pushing it with the dog attack anyway. And then they said, how far can we push this? 
<laughs> like they literally said that coming back from commercial and showing the the thread and the sewing machine and everything and i'm going what's so bad what's so bad oh she's gonna wear the dogs all right <laughs> <laughs> And apparently Dalmatians are not the easiest dogs to train, which probably explains all the uh, fake growly faces. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember this. <laughs> I would like that on the blooper reel. I want those fake Dalmatian growly faces put on, like, baby Neil. Well, didn't they have one of the scenes, the, yeah. the deleted scenes, and it says, yes. if you read the corner, it says special effects growl or something like that. Right. They haven't yeah. put it on that scene. <laughs> Uh, one one item of clarification about this episode. According to IMDb, none of the actresses from Once Wonderland and this are the same for these young characters, but they all share a common name. So that is probably why it's confusing. There's an actress named Millie Bobby Brown who plays young Alice. There is the character Millie on Once Wonderland, who is Alice's sister, who is played by Kylie Rogers. And then there is Another actress named Millie Wilkinson, who plays young Cruella. So they're all named Millie, and that's probably why they thought it was the same actor. Or or maybe it is possible that maybe some family relationship or stage name change uh, matches Mm. the things up. That has happened in Hollywood before. But it's young Alice's daughter, not young Alice. So if you look up young Alice's daughter, it should be Millie well, the third one, the Millie yeah. Wilkinson. Millie Wilkinson yeah. is credited on her own page as both Alice's daughter in Wonderland and Young Cruella. Oh, yes, she is. Yes. Okay. okay. Well, there's that is a lot of Millies. Apparently, it's that true. name was it's popular kind of... in 2008 or whatever. Whatever year she <laughs> For was year born. these were. <laughs> well, I watched the episode Mother, which, depending on how you're counting, was number 420. And it was commentary with Jane Espenson and Lana Perea, or Regina. And it was great to hear the two of them together. Jane Espenson, as it is, is one of our favorite writers. And I got to meet her. I just couldn't talk to her, which was a bummer. And I know other (laughs) Once Upon a Time podcasters have said similar things. It's ABC's policies, not Jane Espenson. She's a great lady, wonderful writer. But it was funny. You get these two ladies talking together (laughs) about this episode. And one of the first things they start talking about is the dresses. (laughs) and the clothing of some of these people and and uh sounds like me and jacqueline (laughs) (laughs) it was fun to hear them talking about that and they did clarify something that's nice to know although we've kind of known this anyway they were talking about the fine details of rice at that wedding scene and the opening of mother where regina gets out and kills the groom and uh, they said well that started conversation with the writers about the history of rice being thrown <laughs> at weddings and how it doesn't actually line up with how old the fairy tales are. But then again, the fairy tales are not happening in the past. The fairy tales are happening in an alternate reality or a separate universe, not alternate reality, but a completely separate universe or world sort of. And so it's fine. They don't have to follow the timeline like we do in our world. So rice is multi-universal. Apparently. Why don't they throw pine cones instead? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And I, I liked hearing uh, Lana talk a little bit about working with Barbara Hershey, who plays Cora. Mm. And she said that she just loved working with her and loved seeing her in Once Upon a Time. And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, she's my favorite villain in the show. <laughs> One of the things that they did so well that we got it wrong 
Ooh. is, Ooh. you know, the bar scene where Regina and Robin are talking, and we've said that's the same bar as Emma and Neil were talking in the episode uh, Tallahassee, I believe, or uh, Manhattan, sorry. Well, it's not. It's not actually the same bar. No. Because they couldn't get that bar again, a bar that was supposed to be close to Neil's house, mm. which would make sense for them to go there the twice in the series. But what they did do is they got a different bar and they actually made it look a lot like the bar that we've seen before. And they did such a good job that we had pointed out, oh, it's the same bar, but not actually the same one. And they did actually serve real food. And Lana talked about the food that she got that got cold by the time that they'd finished with the scene, but she did get to eat it. It was really good food at that bar. (laughs) That's hilarious. And speaking of food, there was a a bagel moment they referred to <laughs> when Isaac was in Granny's diner and he holds up the bagel and he says, what's this? And he knows what bagels are. He came from New York. And they <laughs> mentioned that, that they said, you think when you first see this episode, you think he's unaware of what a bagel is. But then if you watch the later episodes and then come back uh... to this, you'll realize, no, he's actually insulting Granny's <laughs> cooking. Because <laughs> he's like... Basically saying, what's this? This is not a bagel. That's I not, know bagels. And that's not the only time they've made fun of Granny's bagels, is it? Or, or her cooking, right? The overpriced lasagna. Yeah. That's <laughs> what Rumpel says in an episode. And they talked about how certain things, like details of Rumpel's poofing himself away instead of walking away from Granny's diner, how that actually allowed other story elements to take place, like... Emma and everyone returning from New York right outside Granny's Diner and all of that happening. Otherwise, what would have happened is Isaac and Rumpel would have walked out of the diner right into all of these other people right there. Oh. Awkward. Yeah. So it was really convenient for them story-wise to be able to just proof. And it made perfect sense, too. Did they talk about how Rumpel who's, you know, the dark one who's been causing all this havoc, who killed a bunch of nuns, <laughs> is just sitting in Granny's chilling. Where he killed them? Nobody's <laughs> doing anything? Like, no one freaks out? Like, Granny doesn't get on the phone to Snow White and go, um, Rumpel's kind of sitting here eating and insulting my food. Maybe we do something about this. They didn't. But, you know, looking back... I can see why, because everyone still thinks this is the Dark One. He has power. What can we really do against the Dark One? We call the Charmings who make it their mission in life to, like, take him down. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) they're on the hunt for Rumpel, even if it's, you know, getting out your cell phone and texting Snow White really quick. Dark One in in Grannies, come now, you know? (laughs) Texting Snow White like you do. It it bothered me. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) One of the deleted scenes that they referenced in this uh, was an extended version of the greetings that happened when Emma and all of that gang came back and saw the Charmings again. And how there was this nice mother-son scene with Regina hugging Henry and also this conversation between Regina, Zelina, and Robin. And we'll dig more into those deleted scenes in a moment. But... They said the reason they couldn't use that, as nice as these scenes were, was a weather problem. Because when Emma and everyone comes back into Storybrooke, 
they have this really nice early morning sunlight. Mm-hmm. But by the time they got to that part of the scene where Regina is hugging Henry and some of the other conversation happening, that morning sunlight is gone. But to push all of that together in the editing process mm-hmm. just didn't match up. So they had to cut it be- as beautiful as it was because it, it didn't look right trying to fit it with everything else. And they didn't realize that until the editing. Hmm. They're worried that we're going to notice that the sunlight is different, but not that the timeline is messed up. (laughs) (laughs) They could have just flashed the words uh, a little while ago. (laughs) A little while later. (laughs) It was a very long hug. (laughs) I don't know that we would have even noticed that. That's funny. And they did talk more about that and also made some comments about some of the nice uh, lines that were shared in that deleted scene. So it's nice that that deleted scene is on the Blu-ray that you can watch. I can't remember if that's one of the Blu-ray exclusives. We'll get into that in a moment. But uh, Jane Espenson has actually never been to Steveston to see Once Upon a Time being filmed up there. Yeah, so she said she is just as entertained as the rest of us when she watches the episode, because not only does she get to see it all produced with the special effects and everything, but some of the stuff she doesn't see until after it's actually recorded. Hmm. So they spend their time in the writing room, and then I guess some of the other producers and maybe some of the other writers get to make it up there, but I, I, I think that most likely the writers have to stay back and continue writing. Ugh. Okay, well, they finish writing before the season finale gets filmed. So next year, let's make sure <laughs> the writers get to actually see Steve Stan. <laughs> and the podcasters. And, you know, we mentioned the timeline earlier. And in this commentary, Jane Espenson and Lana Perea were talking about the timeline and trying to figure out, now, wait a minute, this episode is it's <laughs> about before here, I think, or is it after this? And they talked a little bit about how that played into how Regina acted with uh, Cora and such. And also the nice thing they pointed out is this is the first and only time Regina has seen Cora since Regina pushed Cora through the looking glass. Because mm. the only other time she saw Cora was when Cora was lying supposedly dead inside of Regina's vault after she had Hook go try to kill Cora. What about when she rescued Henry? From she never saw Cora. Okay. It was neat to hear Lana also talk about some of the gestures. And she said, everyone has their own poof gesture <laughs> of when they're going from one place to another. And well, you definitely do. And one of the, <laughs> one of the fans <laughs> asked Lana Priya something about how to ask her to teach them how to throw a fireball. And she explained <laughs> it in the commentary. She said, it's like you're pulling something out of your stomach and then throwing it at someone so you're like wrapping it around and then throwing it and really neat to hear her then describing her thought process because <laughs> things like that it's to the cast often to decide how they implement this like the script might just say regina throws a fireball mm-hmm. and she decides how she wants this to look in a, with assistance from the director and the other producers mm, that's cool and then has to do it consistently for five seasons yeah yeah but when you're the one who makes it up, I would think it's mm-hmm. probably a little bit easier to be consistent with it. Probably, yeah. There were some lines that had to be cut that would have been nice for us to hear. Certain things like, stay away from mirrors because I can see through all of them. That would have been from <laughs> Regina. 
And they mentioned the dragon shots were very expensive. And this is a good thing for us to remember when we're wondering, like, why couldn't they have more of such and such? Any kind of special effects shot is expensive. They're actually charged sometimes by the second for these shots or how long it will be, how much will be in it. So they can only afford to do so much with special effects. So that's why sometimes something has to be in the distance or looked at through a reflection, which is sometimes really cool. And they talked about that here and or just not shown at all or sometimes a little bit cheap because it costs a lot to do things really well with special effects. So it really depends on their budget for that particular episode with what they're planning to do for future episodes. Jane Espenson pointed out that Once Upon a Time does really well with objects, usually. Okay, let's forget about the taser for a moment. But (laughs) it is where an object will have significance and that object will be reused throughout the episode or throughout the season, like the baby rattler. Maleficent's baby Mm -hmm. rattler, we saw that, saw it originally as some weird part and then came back in this episode when Maleficent then was able to give it back to Lily. Yeah. And one of the cool things about this, we talk about when we see fairy tale land, we talk about it as flashbacks. But this episode is so far the only episode where the character is actually remembering the flashback that we see. And that influences the character's decision. That happens when Regina is in the hospital cell with Zelina and Zelina says, you're just like our mother. And then it cuts back to the flashback where Regina remembers drinking the potion that made her barren in order to get back at Cora and not be Cora's puppet in that whole conversation <laughs> that occurred. And it was kind of in that moment they described here that that's when Regina decided because she remembered that she decided I'm not going to be like my mother. And as some fans were concerned, speaking about that scene with the potion, hmm. Some were concerned that because of Regina's reactions to the potion, that maybe it caused a miscarriage right there. But no, they clarified Mm -hmm. that this was, Regina described it as she played as if there was a sudden burning inside or, you know, something was being ripped out of her. And it wasn't that a baby was being killed, but she was, yeah, she was losing that ability. Some people had thought maybe she was pregnant, like maybe with leopold's son or daughter or someone else's child Mm. but no uh, no baby uh, was harmed in the making of this episode (laughs) (laughs) now right now very unfortunately because of the time that we record this at nights hunter has had to leave us and uh, go on with some other things she's in the middle of a move unfortunately jenny and i are no longer in the middle of a move because we're not able to move like we were planning to so hunter had to leave but we'll continue with our comments on this episode and if you'd like to follow hunter she is at bit of pixie dust on twitter and you'll be hearing spoilers from hunter and jacqueline at the end of this episode as well so thank you very much hunter for all of your great insight and comments here what do you guys think of the bloopers <laughs> uh i always think they're funny I just, it's, it is more of a gag reel these days than just like, here are some bloopers and some mistakes that we made. And here are some problems we had with the scene. I thought this year's were actually funny. There were a couple times when I laughed out loud. Whereas <laughs> yeah. last year, I kind of just shrugged and went, okay, well, that was worthless. <laughs> 
Because last year it was only like a minute and a half long or something ridiculous. So I was glad that this year I got a proper laugh. Yeah. I think some of the difference of bloopers from this season compared to like the first season is, for one, these actors now have four years of this. Mm -hmm. So they've gotten better at acting. Just the more they do it, the better they get. Yeah. But also, I think they're both becoming the characters and the characters are becoming the actors more (laughs) over the years. So it's easier for them to be the character naturally than it was before. But that doesn't mean they don't mess up. They do and and still have fun with it. And that was something that's really neat to watch the bloopers is just to see, yes, these people work very hard, but they also get to have lots of fun. And you don't hear, or at least in the bloopers they share, you don't hear someone angrily in the background saying, come on, guys, get back to it or something. You hear the cast and the crew laughing (laughs) together and appreciating the humor of the moment. I love when they mess up and stay in character. Like, I think it was Ursula who was like, I I totally just forgot my line. But like her face was still exactly as she had been in the in whatever she had said before. And she was like, totally like I I don't know my line at all. (laughs) Um, Whereas Josh Dallas. Yeah, he goes back to this little like redneck or hick accent that he does. <laughs> it's really funny to hear him, you know, this guy who was a <laughs> member of the cast from Thor, one of these, you know, warriors. And here he is, he's Prince Charming. And here to hear him with the silly yeah. voice and put You're on the silly face. You're not going home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> or... Jenny Goodwin hits a door with a stroller. I think it was Regina. She just goes, I'll fix your door. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder sometimes what bloopers end up becoming episodes or part of the episode. Certainly there are certain things that are ad-libbed. And they mentioned that in my episode commentary. I think they said there was something that wasn't scripted. but that was ad-libbed and they liked it and they decided to keep it. And that happens with a lot of stuff. Or like when we reviewed Gallivant, how uh, many of the cast sun their lines live during the video recording. And that's what they ended up using in the movie instead of the soundtrack recording or in the TV series. Definitely fun bloopers. I'm sure they will be (coughs) illegally on YouTube (laughs) at some point, but please get the DVD or Blu-ray and enjoy the bloopers there and all of the extras that are on it. Some of the other extras that we got were these deleted scenes. And here are uh, the the deleted scenes that are exclusive to the Blu-rays. Because the Blu-rays have as their exclusive over the DVDs one extra episode of audio commentary as well as the uh, a couple more or a few more deleted scenes. So these deleted scenes that are exclusive to the Blu-ray set, as their title cards say, is uh, the scene where Mary Margaret and David are talking to Belle before she babysits Neil. A great <laughs> scene, by the way. And, and I, it was fun and <laughs> funny like to see Belle and David trying to figure out the family relationship. And David's like, oh, well, actually, I, this would make me your right. family or brother-in-law or whatever they figured out. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, most of them, I felt. I, I usually can see the reason they were deleted. I feel yeah. like they're usually I get bored halfway through and I'm like, okay, you're sort of on this for a long time or there's something really awkward about it or something doesn't quite fit maybe continuity wise. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. saying that means that when you said this other thing later, it wouldn't have had the same impact or I would question the consistency in those two things. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of these other deleted scenes was one that nicely provided some uh, some context to things, and that was Regina meeting the Snow Queen in Storybrooke in 1999, that whole scene right. that happens inside of Any Given Sunday with Dopey also in there. Nice moment with him. <laughs> that was shared publicly, legally, <laughs> by ABC on Good Morning America the morning after the episode aired. So that is available online, but... That deleted scene is exclusive to the Blu-ray. And we've talked about that deleted scene before, but it was nice to kind of see how Ingrid fit herself into Storybrooke and Mm -hmm. actually tricked Regina into believing that Ingrid had been there for a while. That was great. I had not seen that when it was released after. Um, We can't can't get Good Morning. Like the content is always blocked for us. So even when they release them, I'm sure it's on YouTube illegally, but... I've never dug that much for it. Um, I loved that scene, and I thought Elizabeth Mitchell did a phenomenal job acting all. What do you mean? I just, I've worked here for as long as I can remember. Yeah. It's like someone in a former life hated me. Uh I don't know if I really believe Regina would have fallen for that, depending on how long Storybrooke had been there at that point. It said 1999. Yeah. So, so yeah. like 15 years, yeah. 15 it was about years. Yeah. 20, almost 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 20 years. And Regina has been seeing the same thing every day. But you know, this is before Henry is old enough to like ice cream. So she might not have been going to the ice cream shop. And I'm not so sure it was that the ice cream shop was strange to her, but it could have been who was in the ice cream shop. Maybe it looked like she was setting up. Maybe yeah. Not. Maybe just for the day, though. When we saw that deleted scene originally, we theorized that maybe that shop was Dopey's job. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. Another deleted scene that's exclusive to the Blu-ray is when Rumpel was interrogating Regina in a flashback when he thought that Regina was the one who kidnapped Belle instead (laughs) of the Queens of Darkness. And that's from episode 411. That was a that, great... That scene I loved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there was, there was kind of a, a strange moment in it that I could have done without, but it overall, it felt like it would have been amazing to have in the episode. And I felt like they put in something there for the fans, and only for the fans, and that was the clarification that Regina uses crows, not ravens. Right. <laughs> yeah. I also loved the love is weakness. Don't you know that? <laughs> the deleted scene from 415 where August and Regina are talking by the fire while he's tied up. He tells the story about a cow named Nan <laughs> and that's exclusive to the Blu-ray. Steve Perlman, who did the commentary for that episode that I watched, uh, talked about that deleted scene and and uh, mentioned that we should watch it. I wonder if that's some of what influences what deleted scenes go on the discs is when the audio commentaries reference a deleted scene and then they decide, (laughs) oh, we've got to put it on here because you mentioned it. And from 421, another exclusive to the Blu-ray was 
when Henry, uh, shortly after the author had written into effect his book, Henry was abandoned there in Storybrooke, and the deleted <laughs> scene was he was at Granny's looking around, nobody's around, and he tries to drive Emma's car, which is apparently a stick shift, and that's why it stalled right. out and he couldn't drive it. So he ended up driving Regina's car, which is what we see him driving in the episode. But I they cut that. that little scene. Not all that important, really, but that's exclusive on the Blu-ray. It's not that important, but I was glad to see it because they filmed outdoors for that scene. They actually filmed in Steveston, and we had all these filming shots of Henry running around a completely deserted town. And so then when we watched the episode, I kept thinking, but where are the filming shots I saw? So yeah. I was glad to see that they were there nice. somewhere. And then the last Blu-ray exclusive deleted scene is when Henry is talking to Emma in the tower and explaining how they can fix things and explaining what Hook is like now. That extended scene of when he rescues her in the yeah. alternate reality. I feel like that had to have been for pacing and time because it just, it felt like, uh, yeah, you need to get out of the situation and stop talking and you're rehashing. So hush now. So those six deleted scenes are exclusive to the Blu-rays. And if you can get the Blu-ray, definitely get them. Even if you don't have a Blu-ray player, maybe. <laughs> and the Blu-rays, actually, I think they uh, started lower cost than all of the previous season Blu-rays have been when they first came out. The Blu-rays were about $40 on Amazon in the U.S. And if you'd like to purchase them, then go to oncepodcast.com slash season four or... We have the links in the show notes for this episode. I think the best deleted scene was the Twinkie. <laughs> yes. That was so good. Yeah, that was funny. I love seeing these fairy tale characters in our world being confronted with things that we just take for granted, like condiments or a Twinkie or television or other things like that mm -hmm. and seeing the awkwardness of... It, and they're discovering it. You could also tell very clearly from that scene that Kristoff had spent most of his eating time with a reindeer. <laughs> because he kind of sounded like a reindeer when he ate. I loved the little dig at the, uh, yes, it must be magic cake because it can sit in a box for years <laughs> and still be edible. They are magic. I liked the deleted scene between Elsa and Mary Margaret because they're digging more into kind of Elsa's relationship with her own magic mm -hmm. oh, and how I that relates see. with Mer and with Emma. That was one that was just painful to watch. And I don't know if music would have helped, but I just felt so awkward. I wanted to leave the room. <laughs> so I was kind of glad that one got cut. Yeah, the deleted scenes are very unedited, uh, both in special effects, music, sound, scene cuts sometimes as well. But I did think it was a neat moment. And it would have been cool if it could have been in there, but yeah, edited more. Yeah. I had a star beside that one because... It seems like a lot of the fans want more heart-to-heart -heart stuff in the show. Like, I know when uh, Emma first found her parents, everyone was like, "Where's when's when's Emma and Charming going to have, like, a father-daughter moment and that kind of thing. But it, it seems like those are the first scenes to get cut so that they can move the story along. So it's nice that the fans still get that, even though they didn't get it during the actual season. 
Mm-hmm. It is, but we don't know what is considered canon. I mean, I I get the whole, it's nice to see that emotion, but it would be nice to see it in the show. Mm-hmm. Because it's becoming incredibly plot-heavy and plot-driven. And I would not mind a few more. I wouldn't mind if some of these had actually been in the episode and they had found a way to condense the plot a bit so that we could have some heart. Mm-hmm. And speaking of heart and the emotions... One of the scenes that surprised me was this deleted scene of Henry talking to Mr. Gold and asking for his fake memories back and that he wanted to forget Regina. I don't remember seeing any of that kind of struggle from Henry no. in the episodes. Yeah, that one was, if I remember correctly, it was one that was released Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And it would have been nice to have that in there because I thought it was a... It it was a nice scene between the two of them because we hardly ever see Rumple and Henry interact. And after Neil's death, I kept expecting them to come together as a family. I expected, you know, Rumple to latch on to Henry and to want to bond with his grandson. And it didn't happen. And then Henry turned around and like emotionally manipulated Rumple by using Neil's death. <laughs> Hashtag not over it. Um <laughs> So, but this was a really nice scene, and I I wish this had been one that they had kept in because it humanized Rumple in a season where he just comes across as completely evil for the sake of evil. Yeah. And this would have shown that he's still the Rumple I love somewhere <laughs> deep down inside. Yeah. There was a moment in that scene as well that I thought was like major foreshadowing for what we know of now that is coming in the next um, season when Rumpel said, you come from the lineage of the Dark One and you have the blood of the Savior. Yeah. That's like, what have we been talking about for the whole last, like the finale was all about like the Savior's blood and the Dark One's dagger. And that was something that's been hinted at in the past. And it seemed like they tried to pass off the heart of the truest believer as being the result of that and with season three. Remember, there was that extra on the second season discs, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. that was talking about the family tree and pointing out that Henry is the heir to all of these kingdoms, as well as the combination of light and dark and all of this stuff. And uh, it was nice to hear them say also the lineage of the dark one, not blood of the dark one, because right. he's technically not. Since it wasn't yeah. the dark one. Yeah, when when Balefire was born. I think we've said before, when we, like, way, way back, it was all roads lead to Rumple, but all roads also lead to Henry. Yeah. Because they're, yeah, directly All roads related. lead to Storybrooke. <laughs> or don't, depending on who you are. <laughs> the last deleted scene that really stood out to me was, again, this one where everyone was hugging when Emma... Zelina, Regina, Robin, Roland, all of them come back into Storybrooke. One of the nice things here that I wish they left in the episode to explain some things. I remember when we heard about what was going to be done with Zelina from the episode, what Regina decided. We questioned things like, well, what about Roland? What are they going to do about him? And he'll remember Marion and Zelina and all of this weird stuff. What will they do here? Well, in this deleted scene near the end of it, 
Robin is told to go to Regina's office and get a forgetting potion with question mark on it. And that's what would then help Roland forget Mar- Marion and Zelina. It's such a terrible option. Yeah, I'm still so against that. I really hate that. Right. I, that was not one of Jane Espenson's better ideas. <laughs> um, I liked that scene. I loved the Emma and Lily interaction where basically Emma threatens her if she mm-hmm. does anything to her parents. Uh, which kind of explains why they were all sitting in peace later in the episode. Right. Before we move on to the last few features that were on the Blu-rays and DVDs to tell you about our thoughts on them, I want to thank some people who left us some kind reviews in iTunes. G-Dot from the UK said, Great addition to the show. A wonderful podcast by people who truly seem to adore the show. Much love. Thank you, G-Dot. And... Eglay01 from the USA said, I have been watching Once Upon a Time since basically the beginning. I didn't know much about podcasts until earlier this year. And this podcast is what made me love podcasts. I love that the podcast is very clean and they are not afraid to be open about their faith. Daniel, Jeremy, Aaron, and all of the others are so funny and they really dig into the show. Sometimes they, I think they dig a little too deep. <laughs> cough, Daniel. Cough. <laughs> They took a show that I already loved and made it even better. <laughs> Keep doing an awesome job, guys. Thank you very much, Igle01. And Don Perignon said, This show always has the best reviews. I love the initial reviews because they are definitely off the cuff. But I am most impressed with the longer reviews because the hosts do so much necessary research that makes the show that much more interesting. So she'll love this really long episode <laughs> of our podcast <laughs> and their opinions that much more valid. I have been listening to the podcast since season one and have yet to be disappointed. Thank you for this great podcast and keep up the fantastic work. Joseph. Sutton from New Zealand said, I think you guys are the greatest podcasters ever. All your podcasts wow. bring me a lot of joy. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Love you guys. Thank you very much. And Rookie B from the USA said, Seeing that Once was nominated in the podcast awards, I decided to start watching Once Upon a Time and then started listening to Once podcast soon thereafter. I am so glad I discovered this podcast. I'm still catching up on both the show and the podcast. Just finished season two of the show and working my way through season two on the podcast. Love the listener involvement. Thank you very much, Brookie B. And thank you, everyone, for your kind reviews in iTunes. They really encourage us and they help other people find the shows. And you can also review on Stitcher as well. So if you'd like to write a review, please go to oncepodcast.com and click on the iTunes button or the Stitcher button and write a review there and hear your name then read out on the show and thanked for your review and thank you very much that's really encouraging to us it is and having your name read on the show is like seeing your name in lights except it's hearing your name in audio waves or in pixels (laughs) if you read the show notes which show notes for this episode by the way at oncepodcast.com slash 202 pixels are lots of little lights i can't believe we're on 202 it's been a long time Let's go behind the magic with the tour from Josh Dallas and Jenny Goodwin. I I thought so awesome and so destroying of all my hopes and dreams. Well, maybe not all of them. It was a little cheesy, yeah. No, I don't follow production news. 
this guy right here still had no idea that there was a soundstage that was replicating Main Street. I had really? heard that the inside of Granny's might be a set, and I didn't want to believe that. I didn't know there was a set for even the outside of Granny's, like the patio and everything, which is probably why they shoot so many things at night, because uh-huh. it's not really night. It's just they're on the soundstage. Yeah. I didn't know that. They destroyed that whole illusion for me. But they clearly still go to Steveston for a lot of things. I just remember one of the earlier seasons had that whole feature where they showed how I thought daily they sort of changed all the signs Mm -hmm. in the town and transformed it into Storybrooke. And I just thought, well, who needs to build sets? You've got this whole town. You're just there every day. That's pretty cool. They do that. They do that. Still, because they need to change the outside to match as they're doing outside shots. But if I go there and I visit that diner, I'm not really in Granny's. Yeah, it's not even... I think it's not even a diner, right? The library is a fish and tackle shop. I know that. I think it is a diner. I think, though, that when they're filming outside, it's closed. Because when I was there, that's where the actors went to like hang out when they weren't filming inside the the diner. Yeah, I could have sworn they showed how they changed the interior as well. But maybe I I made that up. No, I think that it's newer that they have built these things. Oh. I don't think they've always had them. Interesting. So maybe it it's, was true before. But, but it's a it lot was... to film in Steveston. Like they have to shut down the road for yeah. mm-hmm. like they don't twenty four hours that often. <laughs> so maybe once they realized the show wasn't going anywhere, they built the sets. But it just sort of <laughs> made me as in it's not leaving television. Right. <laughs> <laughs> once they realized they were never going to truly successfully destroy Storybrooke, no matter how many times they start to write that plot. They went ahead and built the sets. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they've had the set since at least season two. Oh. I mean, they film the majority of the time in studio. Well, it's always big news when we're outside. We always oh, know. I was blissfully unaware. And I must say, some of the sets, especially Mary Margaret's apartment, or I should say the Charming's apartment at this point, look really creepy without all the studio lighting turned on (laughs) you mean they look like real apartments no it just looked creepy like too dark but i could have sworn too that we had seen the inside of the bathroom but i guess we haven't i thought we'd seen a wall knocked down the door has been open to the bathroom before okay but there's never been a scene in the bathroom but it makes me very happy to know that it's completely set up and decorated. <laughs> I didn't think there was actually going to be anything inside the bathroom. Yeah. I thought that was going to be the big twist. Yeah, I and so I was too. like, they have a shower and a commode in there. That's <laughs> odd. <laughs> like, why? And they didn't show the loft, which is like, I feel like it's because they know that we know that there's no way that the number of people that have been living in that apartment could actually fit in that apartment. <laughs> Right. We know there is a loft, but apparently Emma and Henry now both live up there because otherwise, like, one of them sleeping on the couch and then now Neil is kind of there, so... Well, let's face it. Half the time they spend their nights chasing one villain or another, usually at least <laughs> one of them is missing. At least one. You know, abducted in another realm. So really... 
the number of people who have to sleep there at any given moment is probably pretty low. It's like knocking the side of the truck to keep the parakeets flying so that the truck isn't too heavy. That's a that's a niche joke for you from Whoa. several years ago. Someone's going to be like, whoa, I haven't heard that joke in years. <laughs> Someone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually, it's funny. I wanted this. I could have done with more of this, like just on the set. Like if they just gave one of them, maybe Jenny Goodwin, just like a camera or just told her to record just through the year and then put it all together. They did something like this on Doctor Who once or twice. They do that on Scandal. They gave Josh Molina a camera and he does like a four minute kind of it's released the day of the episode a four minute behind the scenes and he's just like the annoying person that's like oh we're we're in makeup with this person tell me about your makeup and like they're literally they don't know that he's gonna come up behind them and <laughs> and do this and he's like kind of obnoxious about it so it works really well i don't know that Ginny would be the right match for that but right maybe yeah uh yeah but i love this i thought it was the best part of the dvd um and speaking of mary margaret's loft they were there and they found josh dallas in the bed (laughs) and (laughs) um josh dallas points to the bed and says that's where we make tacos and i died i i don't know that i've ever laughed at once upon a time so hard in like the past three years that i have laughed at that because it's such a fandom reference and i like that they recognize that the fandom has come up with lingo and terms that have just become kind of like our identity as a fandom because making tacos is so (laughs) fandom. Like anytime there is any kind of sexy shenanigans, it's taco making in this (laughs) fandom. So (laughs) that just delighted me. We got to see, I think more of Mr. Gold's shop Mm -hmm. and focusing on what's in his shop than we've ever seen before. He has musical instruments. Did we know that he had musical instruments? <laughs> he has everything. I'm not surprised. Like he has old cash registers and there's like a clarinet and I love that they reference the hidden Mickeys. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I saw a Mulan looking kind of chess game happening, but I oh, yeah, couldn't yeah. really see it close. It enough. was yeah, I think it was the um it was like the Chinese warriors. Yeah. That, the big ones that they found. And knowing him those are actual Chinese warriors. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. <laughs> then we had this special, Defrosting Frozen, which was nice to see uh, more of what their thought process was on bringing Frozen into Once Upon a Time instead of that poorly acted Inside the Writer's Room <laughs> Blu-ray exclusive from season well, they're three. they're writers. <laughs> they're not actors. Yeah, and uh, to learn things like Georgina, the lady who played as Elsa, Mm-hmm. Actually has an Australian accent. She does. On that point, I noticed tonight that Anna Galvin, who played Cruella's mother, was also born in Australia. So I don't know if she naturally has an Australian accent, but there's at least there's a lot of Aussie-ness on the show this yeah. season. I think these writers like accents. Yeah. <laughs> and then making... The actors and actresses make their accents go away. Yeah. Yeah. Which amazes me sometimes. Well, sometimes, but sometimes they're allowed to have them. <laughs> but then again, 
American speaking is not necessarily accent free. We think of it that way because we are used to it and somewhat some Canadians. But I mean, it's for, for someone in, <laughs> I say that to help account for the fact that Aaron mostly sounds American. <laughs> mostly? No, I, I don't know that I agree because there are times like when she says sorry and I'm just like, uh, you're Canadian. What did I, oh, sorry. That's why I said mostly. What just happened? <laughs> but then again, like to someone in Australia, they hear us and they think we have the accent. Well, yes, I'm aware. So of but for, for the show, it's like a chameleon thing. Yeah, yeah and, and they have some amazing abilities to be able to do that and just sometimes go back and forth. Like one of the mm. bloopers with... Um, Robert Carlyle is he drops out of character and you hear him with his uh, Scottish accent. Right. And then uh, we assume he gets right back into character with his accent that he does for once upon a time. I don't know that I've ever heard Elizabeth Mitchell speak, but for acting in both lost and in once. And uh, she's very, I don't know. Some, she had like a very like calm, kind of like an eerie calmness to her. Mm-hmm. And I loved, I think it was in this um, part of the Blu-rays yeah. when she was explaining about how the character always thinks that they're the ones who are right. And so they're really not the villain to themselves. And right. it made me also think of her character on Lost, which I do think she was maybe also referencing in that comment. But um, the more I the more I watch these like these these Blu-ray things makes it makes me very sad that I was like a week too late to meet all of these Frozen people when I was in Steveston because um. I was there for the first episode after Frozen was done. I've heard from the people that I met when I was there that they were just lovely, lovely people to to interact with. They mentioned that how they wove Frozen into Once Upon a Time was not intended to be a sequel to Frozen, but they just wanted to bring the characters in to Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, however they intended, I thought it was very well done. It felt like a sequel of sorts or an expansion or something. So now when you watch Frozen, you can see the ship and see their parents and think, oh, then there was all this other stuff that was going on. Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's hard not to see it as a sequel, though, or not to see it as an expansion of the universe when Elsa and Anna looked exactly like their cartoon counterpoints. And when they slipped in every single (laughs) Frozen reference possible. I mean, every single character that was in Frozen, they somehow inserted into Once Upon a Time. So it wasn't just that they kind of wanted to play with these new Disney characters they took the movie Frozen and completely moved it over to Once Upon a Time and just were like, let's polish this and shine it up a bit. So I I don't know. I kind of disagree that it was done well. It's not necessarily a sequel, but I don't think that it's as disconnected from the Disney movie as they think it is. But I think that's what they've done with every Disney movie, right? Like that's, they've taken parts from every Disney movie and kind of, messed around with them and rewritten them and merged them and stuff. That's what they do. But I would say not to the extent that they did Frozen. I mean, any excuse they had to put in a character from Frozen, they did. I mean, the parents, the the songs, the bridge, 
um, you know, the giant snowman, the the Duke, the rocks, Oaken. Yeah. It, it's like everyone except <laughs> the the very character that we all wanted to see. I didn't. Well, Olaf. Olaf. I didn't. That's like saying... They referenced him, though. Yeah, that's true. They brought Star Wars in Once Upon a Time, but they left out Jar Jar Binks and everybody's sad. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. That is not a fair comparison, and I did not mean to start a firestorm <laughs> across the fandoms. <laughs> um, I don't even get that reference, so don't worry. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't say that they did what Kitsis and Horowitz said they wanted to do well. I just think they did what they did, and I liked it. <laughs> I think that it was very connected and it was very sequel like. So if they didn't mean to, they kind of failed, but I thought it was very good. <laughs> I also don't think that it made itself essential to the movie. So for me it worked, but it was different from the other stories they've told in that they didn't really necessarily give it their own spin on origins i mean they did and they mm-hmm. didn't the well, characters the snow were queen they did more true to the movie than any of the other characters we've seen from disney movies yeah but the snow queen's origin story was kind of basically elsa's origin story with a couple twists i mean instead of one sister it was two you know you still had this pompous duke you had someone who wasn't in control of their powers and created a lot of fear yeah <laughs> i think we disagree here but well, aaron and i do but meh i liked it <laughs> hunter wanted to point out that much of what they talked about in this special defrosting frozen was also discussed in the episode one commentary the only other thing that i wanted to point out was I thought it was really cool that the ice cream inside any given Sunday was real. Yeah. <laughs> because Elizabeth Mitchell tastes the banana ice cream and said that it's phenomenal. Which makes me wonder what did they do when they recorded in there because they intentionally made it silent. Remember? No no cooling things or motors or anything right. running. So probably they just turned mm-hmm. it off. But yeah, that they had real ice cream in there. <laughs> and Jenny Goodwin never got to try it. Yeah. Then the last feature on the disc is Three Who Stayed. Did you notice the credits at the end of this? Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned before when we did our unboxing how we theorized that this will probably be something like a production sort of thing for Storybrooke as if we're watching on Storybrooke yeah. TV. In the credits, it mentioned the two hosts from Good Morning Storybrooke. Uh-huh. They were the executive producers. And those were um, Hart Archer and Goldie Loxley. All <laughs> uh, right, right. Now, this was the piece that i thought was just kind of cheesy and kind of strange largely because i don't remember well i'm starting to have (laughs) a moment in my subconscious you guys are probably gonna laugh at me i just don't remember a mass exodus no neither do i People leaving town okay good there wasn't i don't remember people leaving so i at first i was like what are we talking about um the main moment i liked was the girl talking about babysitting Sleeping Beauty's baby and saying, such a good baby, sleeps through the night, sleeps all day. I liked the fact that one in three beans are not magical, in case anyone was wondering about the statistics of that. Yeah, there's a lot of beans. little hidden humor in some of in this thing and some of the little things, like even just the screenshot 
of showing the tax guy writing Rumpelstiltskin's taxes and deductions. There's something like horses, horses, baby, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. The the cooking thing was great, too. (laughs) And then during the credits, he started to talk about, like, oh, he's an S charity. Or, like, I forget what he said, all the technical terms. But, uh, yeah, S corporation. And so he writes, (laughs) you know, writes it off as this or whatever. Yes, cooking for the children. And not often cooking the children. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe once or twice. (laughs) This was actually shown at Comic-Con this year. So Hunter and I actually saw this before the DVDs were released. So we knew this was going to be on the DVDs. Well, this is why, you know, maybe you should pay attention to spoilers. (laughs) Never. 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 (laughs) I didn't say never. Uh, And speaking of spoilers, we will have some of those after we wrap up this podcast. And speaking of wrapping up, let's do that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Segway King. Yeah. Do we know, do we have a confirmed date for the return of Once Upon a Time? Oh, yeah. Season five comes back. We do have the episode titles, and those are in the forums if you want to discuss spoilers in the forums. But the return of Once Upon a Time is Sunday, September 27th. Last Sunday of September, as it usually is. We don't know the full schedule mm-hmm. as they're working it out. We know there's going to be something special for episode 100. We know they're also doing other cool things for Once Upon a Time, like making action figures and playing oh. cards and uh, T-shirts. No, they're not making T-shirts, but we've partnered with T Public to bring you some amazing Once Upon a Time T-shirts. So if you go to oncepodcast.com, slash t-shirts you can purchase a t-shirt there some really high quality t-shirts really awesome designs for once upon a time fans check it out and when you purchase after visiting our link oncepodcast.com slash t-shirts that does help support the podcast and we'll put some of our own podcast uh, quotations or funny things up there (laughs) as t-shirt designs as well you can get all of the links and information that we mentioned in the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash two zero two this has been a really long episode i know thank you very much for bearing with us through all of this if you're a fan of the show you made it this far so you are a major fan of the show we're looking forward to when once upon a time returns on september 27th and we'll be looking forward to your feedback and we have all of that contact information at oncepodcast.com as of the time of this recording, it returns in 38 days, 22 hours, 44 minutes, and 8 seconds. Of course you have that. You're the countdown man <laughs> for us. This episode of the podcast and all of our episodes would not be possible without our great team of volunteers who make it possible with us and for us. Corbin helps with sorting our feedback during the season. Jack writes our show notes. Boy, give a big hand to Jack if, if you're listening to this because she's got a lot to listen to to write the show notes for us. Thank you very much, Jack. John Buchanan editing our episodes. Also, he has a lot to edit with this and uh, spending a lot of time on these episodes. We really appreciate it. Hunter, Hathaway, and Jacqueline providing our spoilers. You'll hear those in a moment. Some great spoilers, a lot of good discussion that you'll hear in a moment. Jacqueline and Matthew Paul moderating the forums. What a job that is. Keb managing our timeline. And Keb, we love you. You do an amazing job <laughs> with managing the timeline. <laughs> Alias Scape helping to moderate the chat room when we go live. My co-hosts, Jeremy, Aaron, Hunter, and Jacqueline for hosting the podcast with me and for you being part of this great community 
fans of Once Upon a Time. So please connect with us on Twitter at Once Podcast. And I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at The Ramen Noodle. I'm Jeremy Laughlin on Twitter at Fleegon. That's P-H-L-E-G-O-N. I'm Aaron, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87. And follow Hunter at Bit of Pixie Dust. Until next time, have a happy ever after, and thanks for listening. Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our sponsors for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to be one of them and keep the podcast and website running and be like a co-producer with us, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. Hi, Oncers. I'm Hunter Hathaway. And I'm Jacqueline. And it's spoiler time for Once Podcast. So we have a lot to share with you. Yes. Yes, we do. Okay. First up, we had the D23 Expo last weekend. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that's the Disney show and tell that they do every two years. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It's here in Anaheim, California. And they brought in Once Upon a Time. Yes, and they they did this actually two years ago. They were there right before the start of season three. Yes, but they sometimes don't always give a lot, but we got a lot of stuff this time. Yeah, we did. Okay, so it was called An Evening with Snow White and the Evil Queen, and it was moderated by Jeffrey Epstein. And so, of course, we had Lana Perella and Jenny Goodwin because Snow White and the Evil Queen. Um, And then we had... Uh, Adam Horowitz and Eddie Kitsis, and then we got a surprise. <laughs> that was funny. They took audience questions, and like the first person to stand up was wearing, was it a stormtrooper uniform? It looked like a knight, wasn't it? Some th- some sort of weird costume, and it turned out to be Josh Dallas. Yes. And so he joined them up on stage for the last little bit. Um, so it was really cute. <laughs> Everyone knew that he was in town. If you follow yes. any of like these things, he and Ginny were in Disneyland the day before. So you yeah. knew he was in town. Yeah, so it's not surprising that he showed up. But it was really cute the way they did it. Yes. Um. What do you think of her hair? Ginny's hair? I think it's okay. <laughs> I don't think it's great. Okay. For those of you that don't know, it's like white, gray. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like they bleached it so they can dye it black. Well, I don't think so because she has naturally dark hair and she's always sported her own pixie cut dark hair on the show. And this season she's wearing a wig. Yeah. I'm um, not sure I like this hair color. I, okay. Yeah. It, it's interesting, but I did really like her dress. She looked really pretty. Yes. So, okay. First up, we got to see one minute of the new season. Yes. We had to see the first minute. So it picks up exactly where the last season ended with Emma becoming the dark one. And Regina, there's like a whole, everyone's still there. And then Regina's like, she got yelled at. Right. So Regina gets really upset. She's kind of, you you guys know Regina. When she's emotionally distraught, she gets angry and she yells. And she calls Emma stupid. You know, she says, how could she be so Mm -hmm. stupid? Um, she's, she's at her Regina best when it comes to snarkiness. She got su- sucked up by a vortex of evil. 
which I yes. thought was hilarious. She also calls Hook Guyliner. Oh, that was hilarious. I laughed so hard. Mm-hmm. And Henry actually appears on the scene. I don't know where he came from, but he kind of comes running up moments after Emma has been sucked up. And he's obviously very sad that his mom just got taken by a vortex of evil. Yes. And then Hook grabs a dagger that now says Emma Swan on it. And he tries to summon her because she can be summoned with the the dagger. They've established that before. But unfortunately, she's not coming back, which means she's not in our world anymore. Right. She has gone someplace else. And if you listen to our podcast from Comic-Con, Hunter and I talked about the first um, spoiler pictures that we were getting from the gang on set. And it looks like she was transported back to... The Enchanted Forest slash Camelot. Yes. So that's the first minute. It actually is really cool looking. If you get a chance, you can check it out online. Yes. It's also at our forums. Okay. And then they said we need to get excited because the 100th episode is coming up. It will be the spring fin- uh, spring premiere. Yes. They haven't started writing it yet, though, but they are excited to show it and to get people pumped up for it. Well, even if they haven't written it, they probably already know what it's going to be about. They probably already know. Yeah. Most, most showrunners have a pretty good idea of what the 100th episode will be. Yes. So for the 100th episode... There were a lot of characters listed that could potentially return. Adam and Eddie just said maybe to every single one of them. But it included Tinkerbell, Aurora, Ruby, and maybe even Young Balefire. So it's possible that those people could return, but we probably won't know for a couple months. You know who hasn't been back in a very long time? Cinderella. That's true. We haven't seen her in a while. We haven't seen Rapunzel in a while. Right. I don't think they, we're ever going to see Rapunzel. Uh, whatevs. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, she was the very definition of a filler character. I don't expect that they even remember that they did her story. <laughs> okay, so we got a couple themes for this season coming up. They have announced that this the themes will be love is a dangerous weapon and things aren't always as they appear. Which makes sense with the filming shots and the fact that none of them make sense. Exactly. And we will get <laughs> on to those in a little bit. Yes. Okay, so we already know that Henry's going to regret the fact that he snapped the quill. But there will be events in the premiere that will make him wish he could just rewrite things. I'm going to guess that's his mom turning evil. I'm going to guess so, yeah. Because if he could maybe just rewrite the fact that maybe the darkness goes someplace else or, you know, the darkness just ends and he could save Emma. So I'm guessing it's his mom. Or even right where she went to. Yeah. They know instead of having to search lands and whatever to find her. (laughs) Yeah. So Emma, as the Dark One, will differ quite a bit from Rumpelstiltskin. Um, Adam said that being the Dark One, it's sort of a magnifying glass on who you are. But then they are kind of twisting it a little. And adding to that, Eddie said, having the dagger and the power that comes with it tricks you into believing there's a freedom to lose your fears. And so Emma has her own take on being the Dark One. Emma's the dark one will directly affect Snow White. Charming is going to go and try and get his daughter back to the light. I can only see this happening because that's exactly what they've been trying to do. They've been trying to be with their daughter and make sure she's good for the whole show. Agreed. And 
I really hope Snow and Charming play a more significant role in getting Emma back to the side of good. I mean, they were kind of shifted to one side a little bit in season 4A with the Frozen arc. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like they were doing a whole lot. So I, I'm kind of hoping that Snow White and Prince Charming come back. Because this is really a storyline that they should be involved with. Yes. And that also could have to do with that she was a brand new mother. And she couldn't spend as much time on set as she had wanted to. So now that the kid's a little older, we should be good. During the panel, Lana Perella broke into song and sang, you, you poor unfortunate souls. Yeah. <laughs> That was just kind of fun. It was. They were asked about their favorite Disney songs, and that's that's Lana's, which is nice because, you know, she did play fake Ursula back in season three. Yes. I would have loved for her to actually be able to sing it on the show, though. Well, who knows? Maybe someday we will actually get a musical. <laughs> okay. So it was talked about with um, Josh Dallas that there is going to be a bromance between Charming and Arthur and Camelot. Their friendship will light a fire under Charming that reinvigorates his defining characteristics, which we've kind of lost over the seasons. Yeah, and I'm really excited about that because I had a headcanon for the longest time that Charming's father was actually a knight from Camelot. And, you know, in season four, we learned that Charming's father wasn't so gallant and noble. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm excited that Charming is actually being tied to Camelot in some way. That's kind of fun. Did you want to talk about Merida? Yeah. So we all know that Merida is coming because she was the big surprise at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Um, we did get a very nice picture of her. I really like her outfit. I do too. The costume is very nice. It's a very well-made costume. It looks exactly like the one from Disney. Yes. And she is the first technically Pixar character in once then, I suppose. Yes. And she's going to interact with all of the characters. And uh, we'll have another Merida surprise here shortly. Yes. But yeah, I like how she's going to interact with everyone. It's not like just one or two of the characters. Right. Same. Okay. Lana Prella mentioned that the Camelot clothes are something to look forward to. So I just love that time period. I don't know what it is. I'm really excited to go to Camelot and knights and royalty and all that fun stuff. Yep. It's going to be... a a good chance for Eduardo, the costume designer, to really shine and show us some really pretty stuff, I think. And we do have a fun announcement. So we we figured that the core group would be going to Camelot, but then there's a few others who never get an ev- to go on any of the ventures, and they get to go with them this time. Yes, and one of those is going to be Belle. Um, fans have always been very upset that she gets left behind <laughs> i know all the I mean, time you can only bring so many people with you <laughs> she's always kind of forced to sit at home but Belle and merida are actually going to be going on an adventure together oh, that is so fun i think that will be very interesting i get the feeling that Belle and merida's story is separate from the camelot story and that it has more to do with rumpelstiltskin and what it is Bell is trying to do and bring him back because of course Rumpel is still in a coma which we will get to yeah so we talked about where Camelot lies in the last podcast well we tried we tried (laughs) and Adam Horowitz has kind of helped us a little it's still confusing to me 
But he says Camelot exists concurrently with our world. It is enchanted forest adjacent, and it has its own past and present timelines. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to do with that last part. I mean, I guess that means I, I'm still going under the assumption that it is somehow trapped in time because I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I really he, don't. He tried to clear it up, but it cleared it up a little. But I don't know. Can is it like going from one from the Enchanted Forest? Is there like a huge barrier, and then you would cross over to the Camelot? I don't know because there's never been any kind of defining map of what fairy tale land is, because yeah. you have all these different lands, and then they'll say, "Oh, but this is actually in fairy tale land." Like um, Agrabah is not its own separate world. If you watch Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, we we went to Agrabah. Right. And then Jane Espenson tweeted one time that it was actually part of fairy tale land, which means it's in the same world as the Enchanted Forest. So I don't know. <laughs> okay, Adam and Eddie, we need a map. We do. We need a map. We need yeah. a map. Please come out with a map for us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Wicked Witch is still in the show. And we find out that she will remain evil. She doesn't become good. And she lives up to her name this season. And then her and Regina will get into a little bit of a fight of some sort. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to the filming shots. Because we've actually got quite a bit of that fight going on. Yes. So there was a photo taken from Mm -hmm. the premiere. And it's very iconic. And everyone's going to recognize it instantly. But it's the Enchanted Rose from Beauty and the Beast in the Glass Jar. Um, and I'm pretty sure this is what Emily DeRaven was carrying around when they were filming episode one. We it saw looks so pretty. Her. It does. It's really, really pretty. It looks just like the movie, too. I'm kind of thinking that instead of it being the amount of time until the beast remains the beast forever, I'm thinking that it's going to be something like the amount of time she has to save Rumpelstiltskin from being in a coma forever or something. That would make sense. Yeah. This season... Also, instead of Emma being the savior and saving everyone, Regina will have to save Emma. I like the twist and rolls. I do like the twist and rolls. Um, I just hope that it's more of a collective group effort instead of any one person. And that could be Henry, Hook, Regina, Snow and Charming. I think it needs to be all of them. Yes, because they all need to help and get Emma back. Right. So that's pretty much most of the stuff that came out at the D23 Expo. Um, there was a doll collection that came out. It was released at the expo for a limited time. It was Snow White and Regina. There will be a second run of these dolls if you really, really want one. There'll be 6,000 of them, and they'll be available on September 29th online at the Disney Store. Um, they're kind of like Barbie dolls. Yeah, they are. I didn't really like them, but that's just me. Yeah, they weren't my favorite, but I did like the outfit they chose for both dolls. Yeah, but I don't need them. I don't even know how much they were. If you want one, you can order them. Uh, very expensive. <laughs> yeah, if you want one, you can order them on the Disney Store. I think it's like DisneyStore.com, starting September 29th. Yes. Okay, let's move on. We've got a bunch more stuff for you guys. Yes, we do. Okay, 
We have a season synopsis, finally. Once upon a time, Savior has gone dark. As Emma Swan transitions into her role as the Dark One, join the resident fairy tale characters as they cope with Emma's new role and begin to search for Merlin. This is a journey that will take our heroes from the Enchanted Forest to Camelot and along the way bring many surprises, including Merida. So it's kind of what we already knew, but we've got the official synopsis now. Right. And then we got several episode titles in the time since we last did a spoiler podcast. Yes. So the episode that we got after Comic-Con was episode 502, which is called The Price. And it is written by Andrew Chambliss and Dana Horgan. Yes. And then we got episode 503, which is Siege Perilous. And that's written by Jane Espenson. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that don't know, in Arthurian legend, the Siege Perilous is also known as the Perilous Seat, and it is a vacant seat at the round table reserved by Merlin for the knight who would one day be successful in the quest for the Holy Grail. And according to legend, that can be a couple different knights, but um, so far it's not actually anyone they've casted, which is strange, unless they're going to go the Percival route. He is sometimes said to have found the Grail. Oh, okay. And then episode 504 is The Broken Kingdom, which is written by David H. Goodman and Jerome Schwartz. And we know that Lancelot will be returning for this one. Yay! I miss Lancelot. And I'm thinking it's probably going to be an Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot backstory, since the love affair between Guinevere and Lancelot was pretty much the downfall of Camelot. Yes. Everyone study up on your King Arthur history. Yes. I wrote an entire post with probably everything you need to know over at the forums at oncepodcast.com slash forums if you are interested. So we've talked some about what we're going to be seeing this season and things that are going to start in the premiere episode, Mm -hmm. but we've got some more. Yeah, this... Okay, there is a lot here, and hopefully as we get closer to the season, we will remind you guys of some of these filming shots. Yeah. So from the first episode... For our Comic-Con podcast, we did talk about Grannies and how it is kind of being transformed. Yes. There was a beer garden all of a sudden. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. I I don't even understand that. But a lot of these filming shots are just straight up weird. Yes. Okay. So we've got Granny as a beer garden. Mm-hmm. And then we've got Sneezy, one of our dwarves. And he is looking exactly like Emma. So speaking of Sneezy, uh, he is at some point, I think during episode two, turned to stone because there was a giant stone statue that was being carried through Steveston wearing the skinny jeans, the coat, and the beanie. (laughs) And it looked exactly like the actor who plays Sneezy. Yeah. So I don't know what that's about, but there was a scene in the woods where during episode two where um, Snow, Charming, Regina, and I think Hook were under attack by something that was just being called a mythological monster. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so It's just weird. Okay, so back to episode <laughs> one. Um, we talked earlier about Zelina and Regina and how they're still going to be going head-to-head. And we're going to get a lot of this in the season premiere. Um, they filmed outside one day in Steveston in front of, I think, Granny's, and it's turns into a bit of a battle where you have Regina marching towards Robin and you hook Mary Margaret, Charming, Belle, 
and Henry are actually all there, and they mm-hmm. come across Zelina. And Zelina does something to Robin. Like, I don't know if it's removing his heart or if it's the Darth Vader chokehold. <laughs> um, and it looks as though she's demanding something from Regina. And, okay, some opinions were split on whether or not it was the wand or the dagger. I wasn't 100% sure. Okay, someone was watching this being filmed and actually described everything. And it says that, that Regina gives Zelina the wand. Yeah, but they were also kind of a distance away because I got a couple other filming reports that said they thought it was the dagger. Okay. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Robin is then kind of, you know, saved. And then um, Zelina starts waving this wand or this dagger around and then they had on set those giant wind machines that are, they use when a curse is coming. And I think this is how our team get to Camelot in the first episode. I think Zelina magics them there. Okay. I think, I, who knows, maybe she creates a tornado. She could, because she's she could. with the wish. Yeah. Um, and then apparently, at some point, she is cuffed. Uh, Regina uses that that cuff back from Neverland that we're all familiar with. It's yes. it's weird. I'm not sure if there's like a cutscene in between. If they come back right as when they left, and that's when Zelina gets cuffed. I'm not sure. So we're gonna go on, and we saw an interesting photo, and Emma is in it, and so is Rumpelstiltskin, and it looks like she's getting a little help becoming the Dark One. And the photo shows Rumpel, like, in the background, guiding Emma, who is dressed in a rag-type long cardigan with a hood up. I don't know. I think it's very weird looking. It's actually the exact same outfit from uh, Season 2's The Cricket Game. Oh, okay. When Regina was about to be executed by Snow, it's kind of that prisoner garb. Yeah, um, I, I don't like it. Dress. Right, and I'm pretty sure this is a figment of her imagination and that Rumpel is just being there, like, is essentially her guide. Right, like, you know, Obi-Wan has to appear to Luke and tell Luke to go to um, Dagobah, so this is what's going on. Yes, and we did get a little bit more about this. Um, yeah. in From Jennifer Morrison in an in interview, and that... They do establish with all of the Dark Ones in the past and where they kind of go back through the beginning of the season, starting the season, and they start showing all the different Dark Ones and their reason for becoming the Dark One. Like, Rumpel takes it because he wants to be braver for his son. Emma takes it to become um, because she's saving the whole town from being destroyed. And it's pretty much they show all the Dark Ones in the past, and why they took it. So this could be part of her training and her seeing how everyone's becoming, or why they became the Dark Ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think, I just hope they don't spend too much time on it. Yeah. Um, same. Because we know that Emma isn't going to become the Dark One until, I think, the very end of the first episode back. That there's going to be, like, this transition period. Yes. So I'm guessing that the whole Rumpelstiltskin as Obi-Wan Kenobi is just going to be for the first episode. And then I don't know what they're going to do because 
He's in a coma. Well, um, Robert Carlyle offered up some info. No, he offered up something that was really confusing. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But he did did mention it. And Rumpel is not in a coma. Gold is in the coma. Gold has a white heart. And Rumpel doesn't. So it's a different thing. (laughs) That doesn't help, Bobby. I'm not really sure if that helps, but because their whole thing is we are both. So wouldn't they have the same white heart? I don't know. And what's the difference between a white heart and a red heart and a black heart? Well, I know the regular heart and a black heart, but what's a white heart? I don't know. I mean, it's like, I don't know why his heart went to white instead of red from all the darkness being sucked out. I I don't know. Maybe because it was sucked out by a hat. <laughs> okay. okay so- let's, let's go back to... <laughs> yep. Okay, so we do know that we're going to have a ball at Camelot in episode two. Yes. And there will be a guest of honor... And they're not saying who this is going to be, but the guesses are it's either Prince Charming or Merida. I'm pretty and, sure that it's Prince Charming and Snow White. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. I love the balls. I want to see this. And we don't know, though, if it's a flashback or if it's current time. But Eduardo Castro, the fantastic costume designer for the show, recreated it. And it's, they say it looks unlike anything – They've done on the show before, and it's spectacular. I'm thinking it's a flashback. Um, Maybe to back when they met them. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to – I think somehow Snow White and Prince Charming are probably tied to Camelot. I think they probably met Arthur and Guinevere at some point, and I think it was during this ball. Um, and that will help kick off the charming Arthur bromance as well. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so speaking of episode two, we do have a video from set of Regina and Robin, mm-hmm. um, and I believe this is after they are attacked by that mythological monster that I mentioned earlier, and Robin is on the ground, and she's trying to get him up. I think he was probably attacked. Yeah, like wake him up, or like, you know, like those scenes where they smack people across the face, that kind of thing. <laughs> Family show, Sundays at 8 p.m. (laughs) Okay. We do have some new pictures of the Dark Swan. Yes. And if you listened to our podcast from Comic-Con, Hunter and I went on at some length about how much we hated Emma Swan's outfit that they showed at Comic-Con. Yes. I could not stand it. Right. We were were really upset. But she has an entirely different one. And she looks amazing. I like this one better. It looks it looks a lot more like kind of how I pictured them dressing her. Uh-huh. She doesn't look as Borg queenish, which is nice. Yes. Okay, so she's got a black T-length. And for those of you that don't know what T-length is, it's between the knee and the ankle dress. And it kind of like flares out. And a jacket that buttons up. So she looks very proper. The jacket's pretty cool. Yeah, and she's got white hair. Yes, it is very, very white. Yes. which And she looks amazing. I love this outfit so much more. I'm like, I need a dress like this. <laughs> but the video of her is on set with Regina and Henry. This is – yeah, right. So speaking of strange things, Emma – they all end up back in Storybrooke by episode two. 
and Emma's not exactly hiding out. Like, she's in plain view walking around as the Dark One, and she keeps interacting with people. Yeah. Like, she interacts with Regina and Henry. Um, There are lots of photos for episode, I think it's around episode two, of Hook and the Dark Swan close together. I mean, it looks like they might start kissing. Um, She's also inside this new house. Mm-hmm. It's a big blue house with the yellow bug outside, and Hook was in that house as well at some point, I, I do believe. So it's not like she's completely cut off from people. Right. And like I said, it's weird because we don't know what's going on. Right. And I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of this is confusing for us. Okay. Um, and somehow, Camelot comes to Storybrooke. Mm-hmm. There's another photo out, and it's King Arthur and a knight on horseback going down Main Street. And there's a video of a fight fight scene in the streets of Storybrooke. Right. So it looks like, however, Snow, Charming, Hook, Regina, and Emma get back to Storybrooke. It looks like King Arthur and his knight. And I'm going to guess that's Percival. Okay. Um, It looks like they come back to Storybrooke with everybody. Yeah. And they are there to stay for a while. Oh, confusing. Right. So (laughs) speaking of confusing. Yes. um, We talked last podcast about they were casting for Rumpel's mother. Mm -hmm. Well, this was not true. The casting call was actually for Merida. And of course, she's been cast. Um, They wanted a fake casting call in order to throw off the fans so that way nobody would suspect that it was merida that they were casting and i think they did a good job with that yeah (laughs) um so we have a couple more filming little tidbits here to talk about Mm -hmm. for episode four which is what they are currently filming as we're doing this podcast merlin is on set officially he's now going to be working on the show. So I don't think we're going to be seeing Merlin until episode four. But he okay. is there along with Lancelot. So it looks like episode four is going to be a very big Camelot episode. And then we got some pictures yesterday. And yeah. these make about as much sense as anything else we've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> so it was out in the woods. And uh-huh. it was Emma and Hook. Emma is wearing all white, and her hair is, you know, kind of back down, long and curly. It's not up and white like it is when she's the dark swan. Hook is in his pirate costume, but he's wearing his red vest, yep. which is sometimes often used to signal the past. And, and his leather pants. And then you have Arthur and Guinevere as 12-year-olds. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like this baby sword in the stone. I I don't know. It looks like a pile of rocks and someone has stuck a, a a sword through the center of it like it's supposed to be the baby version of Excalibur. And I know these are behind the scene photos, but behind it is a garbage can with a bright green trash bag in it. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I don't Oh, oh, and Hook and Emma were kissing. Yes. Just so you know. I mean, there's so I don't know if her Dark One spell has been lifted by this point. I don't know if it's a flash. I have no idea. I can't even call it a flashback because <laughs> Emma wouldn't. I 
I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah. confused. I, I'm very confused. And then we see Colin O'Donohue on the back of a horse. And yes. Emma's behind him on the same horse. So right. So they're riding off into the sunset somewhere. <gasps> Welcome to our life of not knowing what is going on in the world. <laughs> It's times like these when I, I think people are, are smart to stay spoiler-free, because I don't understand anything. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We do have a few casting announcements. Uh-huh. So, for episode 504, Once is casting a guest role of a medieval manservant who is devoted to his employer but harbors a deep resentment that may lead him to do very bad things. And he will, yeah, he's coming in episode four right which is a very heavy um camelot centric it looks like so maybe young merlin maybe or maybe um merlin's apprentice maybe because he does have the owl archimedes maybe this is the mm -hmm. human version of archimedes yeah but does archimedes do bad things Mm, not necessarily bad things, but he does snark a lot at Merlin. I don't know. <laughs> and was was there another one? There was. For episode 5, 505, once is casting a, the possibly reoccurring role of Sir Lionel, a distinguished knight who sits at Arthur's round table and is a single father to his 13-year-old daughter, Violet. Very nice. Yes. So I think we threw a lot at you guys today. <laughs> I'd say so. And if you're as confused as we are, welcome to the club. Mm -hmm. So I think that's all we have for you this week. I'm Hunter. You can follow me on Twitter at Bit of Pixie Dust. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87. Until next time, oncers.